I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to this episode where we are going to talk about Misery, the film, not Misery, the book. If you want to hear us talk about that, go to last week's episode in which I think we had a pretty great conversation. It was a Uh, very lively discussion. Very lively discussion. Uh, Mike, you were on that. I was. I was bedridden the entire time. Mac, you weren't. I was not. I was bedridden the whole time. But did you read the book? I did read the book. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, that's a that's a five uh, noser for me. Wow. Whoa, really? Five noser. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was. There was not one part that. Uh, you know, uh, let me. Let, can I retract that? Can I take that back? That's, no, sounds like no. Sounds Is like this like an did, awkward We get five noses here. We stick to it because uh, I know. <laughs> then, you from know what? I loved Aquaman, it. I had no problems. My with Aquaman it. I, review. I had no problems. I I especially had no problem with the lawnmower uh, <laughs> uh, kill scene. <laughs> Which Wait, we, you, honestly, that's really the only thing that I was like. Oh, do you want to retract but. to a four point five? No, no, no. I'll go with the five. Notes. I really oh. did. I really thoroughly enjoyed it all the way through. I mean, there were some things I, I felt you couldn't do on the big screen, which we'll talk about today. But I did. I did genuinely think it was like one one of his best. Yeah. Well, before we get into it, who are you? Uh, I'm Mackenzie Gerber, and I am a constant contributor to this podcast, as well as uh, Halloweenies, uh, which I'm excited because we're going to be moving into the Nightmare on Elm Street realm. And when did you first see Misery, the film? Uh, I do not know, but I did. This is one of the first Stephen King films I do remember watching um, for uh, with Justin, most likely. Justin probably rented this for me, uh, and I watched it when I was probably way too young to be watching this. Um I just remember, I mean, I'll never forget the hobbling sequence that it just stuck with me forever. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't have a, a specific, um, there isn't like a story behind this one, um, but it was one of the first uh, Stephen King adaptations that I did see. Yeah. And who's sitting across from you? Well, this would be Michael Misery Returns Rothman. <laughs> oh. Returns from the, to the pod from last week also. It's true. I was here. I gave a, just like a Mackenzie, I gave a pretty high score to this book. And then I retracted it, uh, but I wasn't a five. <laughs> oh, you got the retraction. I got the retraction because it wasn't a five noser. It was a four point five noser, and I oh, went boy. back on it because, uh, in hindsight, I was a little critical of it of the the book, just in sections. And for the most part, uh, it's I think it's a flavorful addition to the the Stephen <laughs> King bibliography, uh, if there ever was one. And uh, by flavor, I mean um, uh, mop bucket flavor. Well, would you say that mop bucket flavor extends to the film? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, okay. Because uh, I, I would actually think that uh, it gives a nice little uh, flavorful meatloaf, uh, <laughs> the film adds to it. 
When did the, you first see the movie? Well, I actually first saw this when it came to home video uh, back in 1991. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> when it first came out, I was a, I was a horror hound as a as a young child, as a young nubile child that was uh, going into the yeah, that's a little gross of a word, but <laughs> when I went into Blockbuster <laughs> and saw this uh did you remember when you'd go into blockbuster and they would have new releases and like the wall would just be covered with yes, like 30 or 40 absolutely. of the tapes? I, I love that absolutely i like vividly remember when misery was like just painting like the entire wall of like um uh, of the new release section or whatever and i wa- really wanted to watch it and at the time whenever i would go to the horror section to like pull movies and stuff my parents didn't really care but because it was a new release they they actually knew about what was the you know the subject matter because it had been the headlines and obviously it had been um, nominated for oscar and stuff so i i they did have some sort of uh, hesitance uh in letting me rent it but i did and i really did love it as a kid and i pretty much credit my love for James Caan because of this movie. Nice. So I saw it as a young kid, didn't see it again until like, God, I want to say like high school maybe. Um, but yeah. this is the type of movie that was always on like TNT or TBS. Yeah. And yeah. which is funny because um, a lot of the stuff that people really like remember big time from this film are kind of excised. In the yeah. I was going to say cut. the hobbling, they probably cut out. Yeah, yeah. You just see him screaming and all. Well, so. I mean, yeah, this is something that probably was on all the time, and we rewatched. I think most of the movie you can show, though. Yeah, you know. So I think it's. I think that it's probably one of those rare cases where, on television, where they are editing the violence or the violent aspects of it, you could pretty much watch about ninety five percent of this movie. Except, you know, okay, the sledgehammer comes down, they cut away a little quicker. Yeah, than, you know what I mean. Like then actually it's showing it. Yeah. You know what happens, yeah. you know, you're, and and your your mind is always going to be much much worse than uh, what they what you're going to see. So I don't know. I think I don't know, know, kind of works. what they show is so well. Gross. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's so good. I have some hot takes on that, but Ooh, yeah. I'm excited for it. In well, a good I, way. I know that the the one scene where um you know James Con is dressed in leather and then uh, whipped by um <laughs> Kathy Bates the entire time that uh, scene yeah. doesn't uh, that did make the TBS cut but not the TNT cut. I believe uh, they a, use those scenes in Exitine starring yes. Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. And, and that was originally titled Misery Slave. It's true. Misery Slave. Wow. Uh, uh, true, a true fact. Bring um, in the facts. Huge, huge, had a huge crush on uh, Rosie O'Donnell in the 90s. Did so you really? I did. That's, yeah. That's an interesting crush. Yeah. When it was between uh, Rosie O'Donnell or uh, Dana Delaney uh, in that movie, Exitine, that yeah. you just mentioned, uh, I went with Rosie O'Donnell. How about like League of Their Own? League of Their Own, no, because she's supposed to be like like really loud and like anno- like grating. She's also know? next to Madonna, and I Madonna is my my goddess. So really, um, I love Madonna. Yeah, uh, been dancing to Madonna since that. I was a little kid. So you, you think know. Madonna would serve as a as a good Annie Wilkes these days? <laughs> oh no 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 not at all. I, what would be interesting is if you did the the role reversal and you had her character, the characters from A League of Their Own, uh, Rosie O'Donnell's character. <laughs> And Madonna's character, and they both appear, you know, Paul Madonna's Sheldon role. like the con role. Madonna. Yeah, is con. <laughs> Madonna is con. She's, yeah. she's James Con. She's Paul, playing the Paula character. Sheldon. <laughs> she's Paula Sheldon. Oh, man. And then you have Annie Wilkes, who's played by Rosie O'Donnell, and Richard Farnsworth's character is played by Gina Davis. Love it. Love it. So Book it, cast it. Yep. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and... Uh, very excited to return for this film episode because as I revealed on the podcast last week, I've I'd never seen Misery before, but I thought I had. That's so crazy. Really? I know. I went through a great deal of my life thinking that I had seen Misery. Mandela um, effect over here. 
Yeah, and it's like I then I just realized um, that I'd only I'd seen the iconic scenes on um, TV and like uh, like Mel had mentioned like VH1 countdowns of like the scariest movies and I'd right. seen the iconic images and you know I'd probably seen a thing here or there I'd watch the trailer but yeah I totally just had never seen it before and I realized that like right before we recorded because I was like when I was reading certain things about the film I'm like I don't remember that I don't yeah. remember that I don't remember Richard Farnsworth in this movie like and so that was really really wild and uh so yeah I watched it for the first time the other night and it was really cool it was really interesting and uh and yeah I have I have a lot of thoughts about it and I, I'm glad I'm, I saw it yeah. I gotta say I'm pretty stoked that we're watching this around the time of like you know like December or January yeah, yeah. area because it was playing a lot on Shutter uh, while I was reading it uh-huh. and um you know and I and I had put it off and I remember wrapping gifts and I just had the live TV uh, for Shutter playing and one morning I woke up and Misery was on it and I was so excited but at the same time I was like no I still have like 200 pages left mm-hmm. in the book I can't watch it right now yeah and every time throughout the holidays I put it on it was like the Shutter live it was always playing misery. And then by the time I got to actually they took it be off able to, they took it yeah, off the yeah. shutter. Yeah. And so I was like, God damn it. But it's, this is a perfect time of the year to play, to, to watch this. Cause I feel like, let's be honest, we're all Paul Sheldon's, uh, in, uh, in Chicago and, <laughs> in, uh, in wintry Chicago, you know, we never get out of there, but so, uh, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I guess like I have a very visceral memory just of, um, of being a kid. And then maybe it was the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I believe I was watching the Oscars the year that, you know, this was nominated and Annie Wilkes or and Kathy Bates won. Um, and her acceptance speech is amazing. Yeah, it's great. But yeah. I just remember that they showed a bunch of clips from the film. And I remember seeing because when I was that age, I could not handle gore and blood like in any way. And so um, or but I was curious about it. Like I read it, but I didn't I couldn't watch it. And I remember they showed the scene of Paul in the car with like the blood all over mm-hmm. his face. And that's such like a, you know, a nothing shot now. But I'm, when I was a kid, that was part of like the montage of the film that they showed when she won. And I was like, so disturbed by just the blood coming out of his nose and everything. Well, he doesn't look too good in the beginning of that movie. No, no, no. <laughs> but you know, it does look good. The warm confines of the dairy public library. Yes. Which is where we're going to go right now to discuss the history of 1990s misery. Mike Hammond, if you see... Excuse me, sir! Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out! Mike Hanlon! Said I had to go! Said I had to get cleaned up! Tell him! Tell him! Tell him I'll see him tonight! Get out! Last chance, don't you? Get out! Get out! Now, the conception of Misery the Movie... It's a very old style conception for a film. Simply the producer, Andrew Scheinman, or Scheinman? Scheinman, had, had been reading Misery on an airplane and later recommended it to uh, his director partner at Castle Rock, Rob Reiner. Yeah. Now, if you dial the clock back a little bit on that, uh, Stephen King actually wanted Reiner to do this movie. Yeah. He had him in mind uh, and he was going to give him the rights to this film because this was a very personal book, as we obviously detailed in the last episode. And he only wanted a specific person to do this. Yeah. And it was going to be Reiner, whether or not he was going to direct it or produce it or something. He just wanted him involved. Well, because he was a sp- king, especially, I think, was burned a little bit mm-hmm. because he had just gone through the lawnmower man situation. <laughs> yeah. Like it was a, well around this time oh he had been in, he had been litigation about um, th- about them changing the entire movie and then trying to use the the name and his name and everything. So. And, and honestly, think about all the stuff that he you know boiled into this book, his fears of 
basically what his reputation had become this is like horror writer he had just gotten off of an entire decade of people taking his works and making it these b-movie horror which is still happening around this time too in the 90s yeah. is going to be full of it even to a lesser degree that we're going to be obviously exploring this yeah podcast. like i'm looking at some of the movies that came out re- like around this time or the years leading up to it and it's not just the lawnmower man um but like graveyard shift yeah. had come out around this time and that was not well received yeah, and no. then uh the running man which as has aged well as kind of a campy sort of thing mm-hmm. is nothing like his no his uh his book and it's it's a total kind of perversion of it in a lot of ways there was the and then there was a return to salem's lot which you guys definitely oh tore definitely. we tore apart in that one that should have been a lobstrosities in hindsight but we'll, hey we could always we'll revisit it we, we can we always revisit it. um and then maximum overdrive like he was coming off that and no. then which i think probably wasn't a great experience for no. him no. having that gotten trashed and i think yeah the only good movie in this kind of uh this kind of run for him was uh, was Stand by Me in 1986, and yeah. then Pet Cemetery in 1989. So I think he saw with Pet Cemetery, he was kind of he was kind of like because I think he was happy with that adaptation. So he's like, I need to trust the person that I'm working with on this, you know. And I yeah. think, but it, when he looked back at the movies that you know, the one he loved the most was Stand by Me, and so he's like, give me Rob Reiner, which makes sense because I mean, Reiner was in hindsight even before Darabont, the first one to really just adapt something real and dra- dramatic from yep. King. So, and given the that this was such a turning point for King in terms of the tone and the style of horror, it makes total sense that he would want to give this to, to Reiner. Um, and obviously Reiner ended up directing because yeah. um, that wasn't always the, that wasn't always the, the case. Mm-hmm. It was originally um, going to be George Roy Hill mm-hmm. who had done like the sting uh, he had done Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and he was going to direct it. And I actually, in hindsight, really kind of wish that we could see something what that would have looked like because yeah. his style of direction is amazing. Like I even love Slapshot. Right. And um, what's great about that movie is that he just he captures the like scenes um, mm-hmm. or small town environments really well. Yeah. Um, and so I would have really would have been interesting to see what if he brought that sort of like 60s, 70s style filmmaking into this film. Mm. But he had uh, some problems with um, the the violence in it. So he didn't he wanted they he wanted to keep the chopping the leg off scene, I think it was. And yeah. they wanted to change it. Uh, William Goldman wanted to change it. So yeah. Um, but either way, yeah. So Actually, I have I can dispute you a little on that, yeah. and that might just be because we've read different things. I found a quote from William Goldman saying that he wanted to keep the chopping in there, but that Rob Reiner wanted it out. He wanted the hobbling. Mm, so so then maybe so then maybe it was that that it was either way that scene was a big dispute. Yeah, that was with the big a discussion. lot of people. Yeah, um, yeah, like I know that like Kathy Bates wanted to do the 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 she wanted to be able to use the axe. Oh, so wow. she was upset about that. Uh, so that obviously that was a huge point of contention enough that, you know, Reiner definitely stepped in to to be the director of this movie. And I'm, 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 I'm very happy because the way that, you know, he talks about it on the commentary, you know, he had a lot of hesitations doing this because he had never really done a film like this before. Yeah. And I want to say that he doesn't say this explicitly, but the the trajectory of him going from like Stand By Me into like, you know, Misery or like all the, the different films that he was doing around that time kind of reminds me of like Richard Donner yeah. because if you look at Richard Donner's like filmography it is so varied i mean yeah. it's it's insane he goes from like horror to superhero to you know family comedies to to everything so to have that sort of eclectic palette from Reiner is just it just it's interesting it's interesting and and, and it's not like this is really that much of like a 
typical horror movie either, though. No. I mean, I think there's a more dramatic weight to this than there is yeah. horror. Well, also, I think it's interesting that the, the two movies you worked on between Stand By Me and this was Princess Bride yeah. and When Harry Met Sally. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, you don't like, think this is your first choice for like a, this horror film. You but know what, what I mean? a run, though. I, I mean, like, oh, yeah, if, yeah. like, it was so funny because Rob Reiner is, you know, kind of considered a bit of a hack now. I mean, he hasn't made a good movie in a long time, and his... His political views are kind of uh, childish at best, um, and it's and that's kind of how he's he's kind of building his identity these days is by screaming about Russia, and so it's like, um, but you know, I, I was my I was watching it. My wife was like, "Oh, what has Rob Reiner done?" Like she didn't really know him, and so I was like, I brought up his IMDb page, and it's like you got Stand by Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, and then what brought it all down. North. North. Except he does make a comeback the following year with American President. And Ghost of Mississippi was well regarded. I like Ghost of Mississippi, actually. Yeah, I think like Ghost of Mississippi is sort of the beginning of the the end for him. Because honestly, after that, you have Alex and Emma, the the story story of us, us. which is not good at all. Um, Rumor has it, which is that sort of spiritual sequel to The the Graduate. Uh, the, The Bucket List flipped. The magic of uh, the magic of Belle, Belle Isle. <laughs> I remember when Magic of Belle Isle came out, and like the local, I think it was like the Tribune or something, just gave it one of the most eviscerating reviews I've ever seen. I was like, oh my god. Well, it's just a sh- it's just a shame because honestly, even before Stand by Me, he had a really good run because I love the Sure Thing. Uh, I love This Is Spinal Tap. Like This Is Spinal Tap is one of my favorite comedies of all time. Yeah, it's the tightest eighty minute, if not less than I think it's almost like seventy five minute movie. Um, one of my favorite films of all time, and. He just has a really good tone, like, and I and I I wish that in hindsight he would have had that sort of career that um, Donner had because he clearly was going for that trajectory. I mean, he does so many different movies, so it's in hindsight like it's it's he is the perfect person to have done King because yeah. King has so many you know it's obviously that's what we've stressed on this podcast. King has such a variety of of uh, of, of tones and genres that he works with, and it's it's a shame that he doesn't he he didn't do more with King um, because. You know, especially throughout the 90s, I mean, if he would have taken the place of, say, Darabont, yeah, and he would have done, like, Shawshank and continued doing all the different seasons, and he did, had even done, like, App Pupil yeah. um, instead of uh, um, noted pedophile oh, Brian Singer. <laughs> Brian Singer. <laughs> oh, um, you know, it, might, it would have been interesting, but either way. He, we have to credit Reiner to to bringing Oscar prestige to Stephen King, definitely, which is unreal. Yeah, which definitely, is, it's just unreal. I mean, I I guess in hindsight, like, and I'm going to say that a bunch of this episode, but Stand by Me should have been nominated for a little oh, more. Absolutely, so, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's number Stand by Me is number one on our list yeah. of best adaptations, yeah. and I and I think King has said the same, and I'd stand by it too, especially just having rewatched it at our our film festival that we the podcast through. Um, man, it's just like perfect little film, and um really well made so yeah it's it's exciting um like watching this i like you can just see the love that that reiner has for the material and william goldman who did the screenplay i found a quote from him he he called stephen king one of his all-time heroes which is interesting because yeah william goldman is one of king's all-time heroes yeah because if you read it he like has that really weird section where bill's agent yeah bill denver's agents is like not all of them are like william goldman he can't (laughs) you know like buck the trend of hollywoods and you know like and I, and I and I love it because it, there's obviously this sort of like conditional admiration on both ends that because Goldman would go on and do multiple adaptations for him. Um, you know, yeah, and he was awesome. always nervous too. I, this quote he says, Stephen King is one of my all-time heroes, so of course the pressure never lets up. Every second you hope he'll like it. I remember getting a call from him after he read my script for Hearts in Atlantis. He liked it. Talk about relief. So, yeah. 
I know it's yeah, just I like so that movie too. It's so cool, and uh, and then yeah, and the other yeah, the only other I found another quote of him talking about it, and he says that he doesn't he doesn't like to reread or rewatch stuff that he's written, but he went back and watched the movie before he started the play adaptation, which we'll get to. And he said he liked it. Not much I would change. He said, you know, my first draft of the screenplay had Annie Wilkes chopping Paul's feet off, just like King had written. Rob wanted uh, to that change to the hobbling you see in the movie. I fought him on that, but he was right. No, not much I would change. So very pleased with his adaptation. Well, you could also credit William Goldman for finding Kathy Bates. Yeah. He actually had her in mind while he was adapting the story, uh, which is something that he would pass on to Stephen King, who would then have Kathy Bates in mind for Dolores Claiborne. Oh, I didn't know that. So there seems to be some sort of symbiotic parallel between the two writers. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of fun. interesting. Did Goldman know her from the theater? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, you know, Bates was huge in the theater throughout the 80s, but she was a relative unknown in Hollywood, which is why they really wanted to get Bette Midler. Uh, for Hitler. Annie Wilkes at the time, um, which is, I don't think would work. I think it would have been really tough. It's intriguing on the surface, but I don't know if that would work. Yeah. 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 A part think of me thinks that she would go a little too zany. Yeah. Too zany. Having it be an unknown is perfect because yeah. you're really able to just invest that this is that person. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Because it's, especially if you're dealing with somebody who's a fan, you know, if you have somebody who is a known major star playing like an adoring fan, it just doesn't really feel as authentic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, looking at, at Kathy Bates's um, IMDb, she did a lot of TV and uh, popped up here and there in very small roles, like one episode on a series here and there, a couple small movies. And um, I noticed around the same time as Misery, she did a small, small role in Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we all saw that recently at the movies, we because it played at our theater, we uh, like all saw Kathy Bates and we're like, why does she have such a small role? And it's well, like, yeah, guess who also has a small role in uh, in Dick Tracy? Dustin Hoffman, James Conn. <laughs> yeah, Dustin oh, Hoffman, oh, yeah, he does. Right. Yeah. You're right, he is. <laughs> well, he Dustin is. Hoffman does also. To be fair, who is um, Jimmy James Conn? And uh, he plays this like small. He's one t- of the he's one of the rival mob bosses yeah. oh, that right. gets offed early on by um, by Pacino. Yeah. Now the reason why they're all involved with that film was because, let's just say Jimmy Conn wasn't the first choice uh, for Paul Sheldon. And yeah. I'm not just going to say let's say. Let, it, he wasn't the first choice. <laughs> uh, Mac, do you have the whole laundry list of names that uh, basically they went through before yeah, they got so, to? It's so crazy. apparently it was originally offered to William Hurt. Twice. Who I think, I love William Hurt. I think I that so. he would have been great. Yeah. Kevin Klein, I think, would have been really great. I, I don't know all, about Klein. I, I think all of these, I think, I think all of these would have been really interesting takes. Uh, Michael Douglas. Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss. I could see Dreyfuss. Uh, I don't know about Dreyfuss. Gene Hackman. What are you doing with my leg? (laughs) Uh, I think Gene Hackman would have been great. Gene Hackman would have been interesting. Hackman would have been good. Uh, Robert Redford and Mm. Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty was the closest one. And yeah, but apparently... Beatty would have been good. He had to drop out uh, because the post-production on Dick Tracy was extended. So, well, the funny thing that about that's all this a nuts list of that they had offered to all these people, and no one, no one took it. What, I think the worst version of this would understand. have been Kevin Klein and Bette Midler. I because I think that I love them both, but I do not think that they could have like together. Because I feel like they like Klein is, can be good in drama, but people exacerbate his zaniness. And mm-hmm. if he's there with Bette Midler, it's it like, been too it would have been too, oh, too silly. Yeah. So I don't know. And, but Jimmy Khan, like, how did they end up with him? Well, he was uh, ver- he was last on the long list, uh, but the problem was is that Khan was 
out of the mix. Yeah, he was a nobody. He, this was his comeback film, and he has a. There's a really great article that I that I'll be sharing on the socials that dates all the way back to November um, 1990, in which they really talk about how he was a risk. Yeah, uh, for the production to go into because he wasn't a box office draw anymore. I mean, he was huge in the seventies. Um, he lost a shitload of money um, through not through gambling like his titular character, the gambler, but uh, <laughs> through people that he had worked with. Just lost a lot of his money, so he was really broke. And Man. Um, he said that in this interview, he said that he would have quit acting altogether if he just didn't even have if he had some foundation to rely on but he didn't um and now leading up into misery he was like mulling over scripts for like alienation which said that like the title alone made him want to puke oh, man. um he was going to be in um, i love him in alienation though i know well he would <laughs> he, he was going to be in another like uh like italian monster film um and he just didn't want to do that and then he got this you know the the role landed on him and what's so funny in all the potential cast members that are going into this this is such a it's all the, the all the men that come they're all macho men for the most part that that really got close to this role especially like Warren Beatty who apparently had notes on how to um to kind of readjust the film and the role okay and, and James Conn is like a macho man like from the 70s <laughs> yes. like he really is no like, he is I mean like some of my favorite like scenes of him are just him like with his fucking shirt off with like this burly chest and like him smoking a cigarette so what's funny is like a lot of this interview with James Conn talks about how like you know I play a victim uh, and I it's, it's it's you know it's it's not my typical role and you know I'm, I'm kind of passive in this movie and Warren Beatty had the sort of same hesitations also so it's it's like this weird, like sort of um, not role reversal, so to speak. I guess it is a role reversal in a way because like mm-hmm. Annie Wilkes is the lead that's more powerful in here and she he has to be the submissive one. So it's kind of fun watching all these like veteran actors like be like, uh, I don't really want to be the submissive person. In I this. have a and, great quote on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. That William Goldman said, he goes, we went to Harrison Ford, Michael Douglas, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman and Warren Beatty. None of them would do it. They don't take roles where they're not in charge, especially if a woman is. In Misery, the woman has the power. This that's from the. So, that's what the Chicago Tribune. He said that too in uh, nineteen ninety. It's just so interesting, you know. Um, and and I, and honestly, like I think that this is. I think that's what's so great about having James Caan in this is because he's so like even in The Godfather, he's so his own. He's so on his own island. Yeah. That I mean, that's what obviously leads to his downfall. But he just. I, that's like to have him be in this role is so interesting. Whereas like, I think having Michael Douglas, it's interesting hearing that from Michael Douglas. Cause he, he's never in control in any of those movies, like basic yeah. instinct or Dis- disclosure. Although well, those, those, are all all came, those are all after this those all did come after later, <laughs> but fatal attraction was the eighties though. So it's, well, I guess he's kind of in control well, he, in that way. Yeah, but yeah. I, out of all that, that cast, like that we, that we went to the potentials, like Douglas is the only one I would, I would really have loved to see. In this. Yeah. He would have been great. You know, I would have loved to see that, you know, I, I'm intrigued by the Warren Beatty idea. Like, I mean, obviously like who knows what his notes would have been, but I, I do think that someone that sort of that exudes that history of of being kind of a lothario as well and kind of like a cool playboy kind of guy you know like because Beatty's like so notorious in that sense and uh and also just so handsome i mean like hey khan he's a very handsome man but uh he's more of a rugged handsome so well he i i do love the idea of like Beatty being here with Uh his like eyes like half closed like (laughs) you're gonna have me right (laughs) like like i just (laughs) Because like honestly, like Beatty already was pretty old when mm-hmm. that mo- when this movie came around. Yeah, I know that's really interesting because I I don't remember how old they say Paul is in the book. Um, I guess it was like late thirties. I feel like so it's a little bit it's a little bit striking to see him like 
like all these like to oh, imagine nice. these older actors with it too yeah. but i think you know that's such a huge part of it is all is it is all about emasculation in so many ways and about a tough guy like like being dominated by a woman and losing his agency so i think that the casting of that's why i don't think richard dreyfus could work i love yeah. him but he's such like you know like he's like a little weasley kind of guy you it's know my leg damn you <laughs> and i like um, i do like that they they were going with <laughs> I do like that they cast someone like well known in the role because he's supposed to be a, a yes. bit of a celebrity. Yeah. So it, like it made sense that fandom there, that you, yeah. and you do start to feel really uncomfortable right out the gate. Um, well, I, it didn't pull me out of it that I was like, oh, this is James Conn. Like, no. Well, it, it reminds know. me too of like it feels like kind of a Mickey Rourke casting in The Wrestler, where you're where there is kind of the dual narrative because James Conn probably people knew that his star had kind of faded. So to see him in this movie, kind of you know be a guy who is uh you know locked up in a bed like put in a bed and is hobbled and all this other stuff there was sort of that dual narrative to go that his career's been hobbled to you know just like in mickey york the wrestler he's like this old star who is now faded you know yeah it's like that kind of uh, that narrative always i think helps especially around award seasons yeah yeah because <laughs> people love that i'm sure khan was nominated for this he wasn't. He wasn't. No, okay, so this no. was like uh, Kathy Bates' show. I feel like yeah. he gives a real great performance in this. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah, but definitely Kathy is the. Oh, uh, yeah, well, is the star. And I mean, so. Kathy is absolutely the star in this. But I, I, I just do love like how uh, Khan <laughs> plays some of the more understated uh, moments in this film. Even when he's just like kind of watching her around the room, I, there's just something about like. Khan's affectations of just like how he responds to things with his eyebrows mm-hmm. just kills me every yeah. time. Every time. And I, I always think of like, th- this movie sucks, but I love when um, he just like chews up the scene in like Eraser. Yeah. With, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and he's, he's so like, good. And he, like, gives, he gives Arnold Schwarzenegger the, uh, the, the, the water or something like that that has like some sedative in it. And, uh, <laughs> and he's just sitting there just like, you know, John, everyone's uh, asking, are you a career guy or are you, uh, you for yourself? for myself or something like that and then, and then it's, it's like matter of fact tone is so good and you and only james Conn would be able to play like a villain against like fucking arnold schwarzenegger for christ's sake and so yeah i i love his when he starts actually turning and starts taking that sort of aggression towards annie that that's some of my favorite parts of this movie yeah because yeah. he just classic con in this um i i do know that like for um for kathy Bates, she kind of went through the ringer uh for this role um she was you know, like Hollywood was basically like, th- there's a really interesting um, uh, interview that she did in like 2016 or where she talked about how she says, when I first went to interview for Misery, they were saying things like, you're not Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, and Oof. I just don't get the relevance of that remark. I'm not Elizabeth Taylor either. I'm not Sean Connery. So they were, they pretty much downplayed, you know, her, the fact that like, you know, she is this unknown and they kind of, I mean, you could tell that she was definitely like put in some sort of corner um, yeah well yeah i mean especially when you're not you know traditionally beautiful in those in the ways and like we're talking like 1980s hollywood like yeah. can't even imagine oh, like how bad the sexism was and so and especially like you know you're about you know you're gonna make a star with this movie yeah. and so it's almost like producers are saying shit like that to her to be like remember who's in charge you know yeah. what i mean and apparently she got really into the role though for this too i don't doubt um, it yeah she the one of the, the in the commentary uh, Reiner was talking about how sometimes when filming would wrap, she would just be kind of isolated to herself. She would like deliberately isolate herself, and mm-hmm. then he had to just tell her like, "Look, like you know, leave Annie on the set. You know, when just when you were done filming, yeah, you know, go back to being Kathy because <laughs> uh, she was like distancing herself, and she, 
she just got really into it. And I think that definitely shows in this uh, this movie for sure. I mean, there's so there's so many layers that we'll talk about, obviously, mm-hmm. when we get to our heroes yeah. and villains section. But I, I I think that she, out of all the, the performances in any of the Stephen King adaptations, I think this is obviously most deserved of the, the award that she actually got. Yeah, because, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much to this character on the in the book and i feel like kathy bates absolutely nails those the sort of complexities in this for sure mm-hmm. um but do you have any other uh, like facts that you would want to go with with the background because like, no I mean, no i feel like i touched on everything that i found and um well there's yeah. there are some interesting crew members in this oh yeah you the cinematographer who? Uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. Oh yeah, I forgot. Uh, I saw him in the credits. Yeah. 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 Apparently, he one one thing that they talked about in the commentary too is that he like he would spit on the ground to like to mark where Khan um, <laughs> Khan was going to drag himself, so he like remembered where it was go going. Um, there is that point of view shot that happens when Buster's on the side of the road and it turns to re- reveal Annie driving. Um, that was literally designed by him. Oh, like wow. he he came up with that sort of shot. Um, which is a little unorthodox yeah. at the time, which is great too because it, it 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 does feel natural, but it also feels like there's such a deliberate um, notion of like panning over to her that it, it looking back, it actually is a very hard and difficult shot. To yeah, actually, match. I was thinking that when I saw it. Um, That's a cool shot, you know. And then also, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more on heroes and villains, but I mean, Richard Farnsworth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whole creation. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, it's like an amalgamation. Yeah, of like yeah. The characters, but and also Mark Shaman did the music. Who he had done the Harry, when Harry met Sally right before this. So obviously that's the Reiner connection. But you know, I mean, he went on to do tons of movies like Adam's Family and City Slickers and all this stuff that's not particularly horror. So it's just interesting. Like I think the score is great in this in this movie and drives a lot of the suspense. What's interesting also is that a lot of sequences are different. Um, like for example, even the ending. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we believe like he does burn the copy of misery's return in this. Yes. Whereas that's not the case. Right. In, in the right. Actual, um, book. Yeah. There's a lot of big changes. Um, some of which I like and some of which I struggle with a little bit, but yeah. we'll get there. But yeah, the, definitely that definitely the burning of the book was a huge one. So, which is a big one. And also, um, even the, I guess he goes in the basement for a little bit, but not so much with the. Yeah, I mean the the narrative is definitely streamlined in so many ways. I mean, I think in some ways to make way for the uh, the Buster Richard Farnsworth story because right. I think that's where a lot of the context and exposition and stuff that we get via Paul's inner monologue in the book uh, kind of has to come through other means in the film, yeah. and like you can tell that like there's such a workman like kind of quality to the screenplay, like. Because I was watching it just thinking, like, Goldman clearly sat down and thought, how do I take this internal monologue and manifest it within yeah. the screenplay? And so there's these flashback scenes of, like, him with his agent. There's uh, all the scenes with Buster and a lot of things that I think are really smartly put in to help convey the context and the exposition and make sure that the stakes and everything are really there. Yeah. Well, Warren Beatty actually helped out with that a little bit. Oh, too. really? Yeah. One of the one of the the facts I was reading online uh, was saying that um, <laughs> like when before Beatty like actually you know departed and went on to the dude Dick Tracy and all, um, <laughs> he went into he I guess he talked to Goldman. And he was trying to, when they were developing the script, and they're basically trying to explain some of the plot holes and go over some of the more attempts to like why like Paul would be able to escape. And this is this is such a great line. I could just so so hear him saying this. He goes, he said, uh, uh, "Pretend that it's me, Warren Beatty, an intelligent person trapped in the bed. 
I would think of every possible way to get out of this house. And like that, some, from there in that quote, they like kind of worked out all the various possibilities and then made sure that they could find ways that would knock Paul back yeah. for, from doing it, which I think King does in the book. I think time. he does in the book. You know, he sets up all I just love traps. that more. Think about yeah. me. Yeah. Warren Beatty, an intelligent person. <laughs> with his like, I just see him with like his hands in his pockets, just like before he's about to leave, he's got like his, his glasses on. Uh, you know, his car is like already running like outside the set. <laughs> Because they're on the set already for some reason, um, <laughs> but yeah. So yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought that was a that was a pretty great quote. Um, and then also, you know, going back into the, the the deliberate reason for why he does burn his book, Reiner actually kind of hits on something that I was that we all were talking about last week, in that he feels that King actually had him keep the book because he feels and suspects that. King um, has this like um, underlying fear of like disappointing his constant readers. Mm, interesting. And that's why he wanted to uh, to deliberately deliberately burn the book so that it shows that Paul is moving on to other things, oh. and he doesn't think that King would want to do that. Right. Um, and that's interesting. You know. So I thought that was kind of a an interesting twist there, and I don't think yeah. it affects the movie at all for me. But um, no, no, I like no, it. No. Yeah, I like it. So you know, but it, t- and it also does kind of what we said in the episode, which is that it. It because we actually get to see the ending mm-hmm. of Misery Returns in the book, and yeah. I remember we talked about how it may have been more powerful to not have seen that, mm-hmm. like, and uh, like we would have been left in the dark, just like uh, Annie is, yeah. yeah. And that's how it is in the movie, so because yeah. we don't learn how it ends, you yeah. know, which yeah. I think is kind of cool. I do love that. There's a lot of lead up. She even walks us through a lot of the sequences and, mm-hmm. and a lot of the questions she has, and so you're kind of with her towards that end. You're like, oh, yeah, what. What is she? Isn't she? And then, yeah, we, you're just left in the dark. I do love that. One last uh, little bit, that one little change that I noticed. Jeffrey in the Misery books is now known as Winthorn in the film. Like whenever she talks about like because Ian is the same because mm-hmm. there's the two men and Ian and Ian and Jeffrey. I just love that maybe Goldman's like, eh, I need kind of a more like uh, romance, romance novel, novel yeah. name. So Winthorn. Yeah. Winthorn. It made me laugh so hard. Yeah, I could see him like William Goldman just like really like taking a long time wrestling with all these like <laughs> these stories that no one's ever going to really even hear about because i mean honestly like compared to the book the story that's actually in the movie is just like so superfluous to everything else that's happening yeah, like yeah, it's just kind yeah. of like offhand remarks and all so i'm uh i've got my books i see mike hanlon waving me in he's gonna check me out i think it's time to leave the dairy public library and uh go hang out with some heroes and villains i'm into it I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! That was a good transition, Mike. Oh, you know, I I try. I try. (laughs) I can't be as good as you with the transitions, but, you know. I, I think this section is going to be pretty easy because we have one hero and one villain. Yeah, that helps. Oh, and, we have two two heroes. Oh, we have two two heroes. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, that's not that, that is that, that is true. Uh, JT Walsh. Let's talk. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about JT Walsh. That's the big hero here. Uh, what is our boy JT Walsh doing in misery? I was so excited to see him, yeah. and then I felt like I had been duped or something because he's not credited Mm-mm. and he's not an IMDb, and so I figured. I was like, did I imagine that? The JT Walsh, uh, if you're unaware, classic character actor from the 80s and 90s, oh, unfortunately passed away in, I believe, the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. His last movie was like The Negotiator with Kevin Spacey and right. Sam Jackson. Um, or it was or Pleasantville. It was one of those movies. Or Breakdown or, or uh, right around that time. Love him yeah. in Breakdown. He's great in that. Just a great, great 
character actor um and yeah he pops up as a cop who is like being interviewed i believe on or like mm-hmm. leading a yeah. search he's a state trooper sherman douglas and he yeah. went uncredited uh, maybe he just wanted to hang out in, in a you know nevada where they were filming this <laughs> he's just like hey uh yeah rob so fly me out there i'd love to hang you know no i'm just a huge huge jt walsh fan so yeah. i was very excited to see him and uh like i said i i I like was I mistaken if I lost my touch? You know, it's like, well, it's just such an odd choice too because he wasn't really tied to Reiner at all. Yeah, like, he doesn't have any um, films that he worked on with, with him, at least from what I could see right here. Um, was he in a lot of stuff before that? Maybe, yeah, he was I mean, a ton. Like he was in the Grifters that same year. Oh yeah, uh, he yeah, was in Crazy right. People, which I love. Dudley Moore, Daryl Hannah. Oh yeah, um, he was in, and then in the years before that, he was in like Tequila Sunrise. Uh, the God, big he, picture. He must have just been in town or something. I mean, I mean, he's literally in it for less than a minute. I know it's so odd because he had already he had done like Good Morning Vietnam. I mean, mind you, these are very small roles. That sure. he's in with yeah. this stuff. Well, he was it's always not, like that. Still, I mean, he was a theater guy too. I mean, honestly, yeah. he might have been like traveling with the show or something and, and yeah. cross paths with everyone. Like he he originated actually a lot of the roles in uh, David Mamet's most popular plays, uh, mm-hmm. like Glengarry Glen Ross and. Um, American Buffalo stories like that. Yeah, JT Walsh was in the original productions of a lot of those. So. Oh, interesting. Oh, I would have loved to see. Was he like the Alec Baldwin character? Uh, no, Alec Baldwin's not in the play. Uh, oh, I know, but that, like, oh, that character's not character. in it. Right. Oh, really? uh, who did he play? He played, um, oh, he played Kevin Spacey's character from oh, Blackberry Clinton. Yeah, oh, the wow. boss. Yeah. Good thing he didn't play Kevin Spacey's character in real life. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think he would have played that role really well, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. he would actually go on to work again with uh, Rob Reiner and A Few Good Men. Oh, nice! And he would, right, and right. he would be in another King property yes. in Needful Things. He yes. plays uh, Buster Keaton, a much uh, more elaborate role than he would get here in Misery. So I'm glad <laughs> that we covered. I know JT we, Walsh. We're starting so from the bottom up. <laughs> well, yeah. if we're starting from the bottom up. Then we should probably talk about Richard Farnsworth next. Love yes. Richard Farnsworth. Yeah, it was cool to see him. I mean, because honestly, one of my my first kind of conscious encounter in the sense that I knew who he was mm-hmm. was in was kind of his swan song, which was David Lynch's The Straight Story. Yeah, yeah. where he's the lead in. Uh, David Lynch is sort of like a non-weird movie about a man who drives it's a Disney movie. Yeah, he drives his tractor across two states to see his brother, played by Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, also starring Sissy Spacek. Now that is a classic cast. That wow. is a classic cast. Um, this is probably the first thing I, I think I ever saw Farnsworth in, and he is so good. And th- this character is not in the book. Uh, it's kind of an amalgamation, I think, of all every single cop all that the shows cops, up yeah. in the book towards the end, but. I remember loving this character when I was when I first watched the movie and you cuz you're really on board you're right there with him trying to figure out the mystery as well and just the relationship he has with his wife and just the small town aspect of it I, I don't know there's something char- really charming about seeing this this old sheriff like putting the pieces together and uh, and honestly, it's a nice little break from the dr- constant dread yeah. of what's going on. Like the book is just unforgiving, mm-hmm. but like I like that the movie walks that kind of fine line between. It's a it's like a dark comedy. There's a lot of humor in this movie. Do you, what do you, what do you feel, or how do you feel about him uh, going through all of the misery books? Is it like he, I guess he's playing detective trying to figure out if there's anything in the misery books to to you know to solve the hey it, 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 that's what helps him figure it out yeah he finds that quote that she has that she quotes in that newspaper yeah. article uh, hell of a memory 
<laughs> well, he wrote it on a post-it note, yeah, and he put it on his desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was <laughs> interesting. It, it felt, seems it seems a little too convenient. Yeah, I mean, it just to me it seems a little bit like uh, William Goldman kind of just stretching the story a little bit. He's mm-hmm. just like, how do I keep this guy in the movie, and how do I also <laughs> use it as a means of of elaborating on Paul's backstory, like, and also giving context to the misery books. It seems like there's a lot more misery books in the world of the movie than in the book. Because yeah. in the book, there's only four misery mm-hmm. books. It looks like there's so more. There's, yeah. there's like eight. Yeah, because when you see Annie's shrine to Paul, there's like, I'd oh, say, yeah, yeah right. there's like eight books or yeah. nine books there. So I thought that was interesting. And it seemed like, you know, Buster had a bunch in his in his paper bag when he came in. So, yeah, it's I feel like that was a sort of a way because, you know, I think Goldman's really trying to uh, establish, you know, what do the books look like? Uh and, you know, because I think like knowing that what the paperback looks like, honestly, is helpful in terms of identifying what kind of books these are, at least especially at that time. And uh, and also how many are there? How are people reacting to them? What is the language like? And also just, you know, using this cop as a means yeah. of, of building out the myth of Paul Sheldon outside well, of the house. Because, yeah. you know, obviously they use external forces in the book when you can hear things and, um, you know, he hears cars and, and whatnot. So he has that sort of out, outside influence, but yeah, we don't really get to see much at all that's mm-hmm. happening up yeah. other than what cat, you know, Kathy, whatever Annie Wilkes tells us, uh, or whatever he sees when he, he opens up that memory book. But. Yeah. I mean, he, he plays a lot in his head with like, Oh, they're probably searching for the car. Mm-hmm. They're probably doing this, but it's all, you know, in his head. He doesn't mm-hmm. know what's actually really happening. Yeah. So you're just as cooped up and claustrophobic as he is. But in the, in the movie, I think it does. I think it serves the movie to, to have that character and be going through that. Did you guys think at all when you first watched this that that he was going to be blown away? No, I didn't. I, no. That is such a jarring death. Yeah, and it's so you, you are so in love with that character yeah. that yeah. It, it it is really th- that that really makes the last portion of that movie work on a level. It, I just didn't, I don't think it would if you didn't have that scene. I think there's because a- it's just like wow, like how what is he gonna do how is he gonna get out of this like the one person you think is gonna save him is totally buckshot blown away by by annie like and characters like that don't die yeah yeah. like he's so sweet and we've you know like uh the movies kind of set us up with this funny relationship with his wife it's Mm -hmm. all like very homey and the movie and it gives the movie more danger there's already there's already danger there but i like the thing is i forgot like i i i remember i read previously about that scene um or i'd like seen a clip from it before but when i was watching it sort of in full for the first time the other night i had totally forgot about that so i was genuinely shocked and it was really great because like especially in a movie of that era i feel like I feel like uh, filmmakers have gotten a little more daring in the last couple decades, you know, in terms of, of no one's safe sometimes, you know, in certain films. Right. But I was thinking a movie from this era, Rob Reiner's directing. I don't think that they're just going to even if it's an R-rated movie that, you know, is intense and it's a King property. I just don't I did not think that character was going to die. No. And, and honestly, I thought that what might happen um, having not seen this in a while for a while was that he leaves and then comes back later on. Um, once like yep. Paul gets out, that's yep. what I thought. I, I totally forgot that he actually comes back into the house. Mm-hmm. It's when he comes back into the house when you're like, okay, he's done. Like, he, I, I, yeah, I, when he comes I, back in and she's nowhere to be seen, and he walks all the way to the you door, know. you start to you start to think. But the way it happens, so brutal. Yeah, yeah. it's really well it's directed. So brutal. Yeah, and just like the the tension is is totally there. It's it and it's and then it happens so abruptly with no camera change or anything when when he actually gets shot. It's a really great moment. Yeah, yeah, and it, the way that it, it's set up where he's facing Paul and she's in the background is great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So, 
And that, that's right, that's I think the first time that you see she's capable. Like he's seen the book by that point, though, yeah. so you know yeah. that she's dangerous. Yeah. But I guess like you didn't see her as being capable of that. Of that, like I don't know. It's I, well, it, killing because babies she does. is one thing, but it's it's really and and this is sick. But it's really like easy to do that if you're yeah. a nurse and you have access and it's you know. But like to pull the trigger of a, a full grown man, like well, she's only know, attacked. She's, she's nuts. Yeah, she's only attacked and hurt people who are incapacitated or you know small, much smaller than her. So this is the first moment, and like including the hobbling of Paul, like he can't fight back, right. and she's got him under her thumb. But this is the first time you see her like actively fight someone who could fight her back. Yeah. You also, know? killing the sheriff, the one sheriff of the town, people are going to come looking, and I think that that is also another change that I like that. You know, she's like, we're both gonna. All bets are I, off. Like, I have the gun. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it's 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 very finite. Whereas in the in the book, uh, that was in uh, five stars for the book. <laughs> but and I love I love the sequences at the end that it goes on forever, where the multiple cops come, they never find him in you know the next room, and he's always quiet about it. Uh, no, I, I that, that 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 works better in the book. Obviously, I don't think you could do that in the movie. It's just a little a little bit unbelievable that he mm-hmm. wouldn't call out. You know, if like multiple cops are there and there's yeah. like, news people on the lawn. Um, but I think yeah, that's why I think this works a lot better in the movie. Um, that it's just like this is it. This is the night I'm gonna finish the book. It's got like ten pages left, and uh, yeah. Um, speaking of. You know, well, first off, the what's interesting is that um, his wife is actually a co-star in a, pre- a previous film. Oh yeah, yeah, they were uh, both in Independence Day, um, not the 1996. I was going to say, who's the Independence well, Day? Film. No, no, uh, Robert Mandel's. Uh, it's a, it's based on. Um, uh, it's got David Keith in it, Cliff the Young, Catherine Quinlan. But the two of them uh, are in that movie together. So I wonder if that was why uh, Reiner cast him as a couple. Yeah. I mean, uh, she's had really good chemistry. She has know? some hilarious lines. Like, I just, the line, she's like, he's probably out having an affair somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. Just the phrasing of that is very funny. Well, her, her name is Frances Stern Hagen. And she's been in a ton of oh, movies. Oh, yeah. Like, so many movies like one of my favorite uh performances and this is you're gonna laugh but i love doc hollywood yeah, uh, yeah. with uh <laughs> with my boy michael j fox uh from back to the future and spin city fame um <laughs> and i <laughs> and i love her character in um in, in doc hollywood and i and she's she's just been in a ton of movies prior to this she was also with uh, michael j fox and uh, bright likes big city which is an adaptation of my favorite novel of all time and um so yeah, I, I I do like their relationship, and Rand, I think you do good, make a good point where like they absolutely trick you, yeah. uh, with the the tone of the the two of them, right? You just don't think anything's going to happen because of that relationship. It's really good screenwriting because I feel like it toys with the idea of being a little too um, goofy for the tone of this film, but it never passes the line. Yeah. And then also, I feel like it does disarm us yeah. for how dire the situation is going to get with paul and yeah. annie especially for somebody who hasn't read the book you know yeah because you know we'll talk about this a little bit more but uh the, you know the tension is made it out a little bit more like the book it's you know from pretty much the get-go that she's crazy and that we're we're in for quite the ride here whereas the film you know if you don't know anything about the book uh and i mean the the, the problem with a story like this is that you know you can't really unless you know nothing going into the movie like any trailer, any 
poster, anything is going to tip you off to the fact that she is going to, like, hold him prisoner. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just the the trouble with this story is it's such a simple premise that the idea – and I think that's why King starts the book, like, she's crazy from the get-go. Like, we're not even just going to put up the pretense. Like, this movie actually puts up the pretense that she might not be crazy. And – um. So, you know, like I said, the it just sort of the the introduction of the cops or the cop and then his wife and that relationship. It's not as like 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 because you had said that the there's more humor incorporated into the film than in the book. And I think that's very true. And I think but then what I love about it, why it's good screenwriting is that it's used against us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're tricked because uh, oh, totally. Yeah, because we're we're led to think that this is, um you know, this world still has some 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 light in it, a little bit of safety in it. Yeah. Like the the sheriff. I mean, Richard Farnsworth, especially like his voice he has like kind of a muppet voice and it's so like it's such like a, a cozy muppet voice yeah, it's just kind of like a cozy yeah. like almost like a uh, croaky kind of thing and i and it's very comforting and yeah, so man. to see him get like the casting was so perfect for him no it is and and, and again it goes into that sort of like f- that faux notion of like this cozy atmosphere that's in this film that reiner's so good at you know bringing into this film because he literally just come off of two movies that create that sort of chummy atmosphere with yeah. Princess Bride and when Harry met Sally, as yeah. Mac already pointed out. So the way that he's able to kind of slice right into those uh, those chummy feelings is one of the, the best parts about this film. Right, right. And because right. you do feel as if like there's this kind of safety net to it being this kind of like cozy Hollywood picture. But then when it gets really dark and macabre, like it's, it's just very um, unnerving. And I think that kind of captures the, the spirit of this novel as, as a whole, because that's pretty much what King's doing with his book. Right. So um, I think we've talked about the supporting cast. (laughs) We've, we've said more about the supporting cast of this movie than probably anyone. I think so. I think so. Which is let's do, let's do, um, Rock, paper, scissors as to who we're going to cover first. Uh, okay. Paul, or, uh, Paul or Annie? Uh, okay. uh, who wants to go for Annie? Uh, I'll go for Annie. Okay. You want to go for Paul? Yeah, sure. All right. Go for it. Rock, Rock paper, scissors, scissors go. Shoot. Rock, Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. shoot. Oh. Oh. Paul first. Paul's first. Polly boy. Let's talk Paul. Well, it makes sense to cover Paul first because he's the first person that we see for the most <laughs> part in this movie. So good thing that we went to shoot Paul. All right, we've already talked about the fact that he was last in line to, to be yeah, picked Jimmy for this Khan. movie. Um, what do we think about James Conn as Paul Sheldon? And um, let's go through it. Boom. I like him in it. I, I mean, there's such a easygoing kind of... Um, uh, I mean, I'm going to say the word chummy again just because it's on my mind. There's a chummy quality to Jim, James Conn, which has always been, I think, his strength as an actor is that mm-hmm. even when he's playing like a really nefarious villain or a mobster or whatever, you can kind of always like... Uh, get on his side a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, he's always very likable, and like I love in the movie Battle Rocket, Wes Anderson's first yes, movie. Yeah. That's used to like great effect. Is <laughs> mm-hmm. like basically uh, they just want to be friends with him so bad that yeah. they don't even really care when he ends up robbing them blind. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so good, and like, but the thing is, he's so likable in that movie. You're cool with it. Yeah. And so I love James Con, and um, yeah. So I like him in this role because I like that he's you know, not playing a villain. He's not playing like a tough guy necessarily, but I totally buy him in it because you can see sort of, uh, you know, the passion that he has for writing and the, how much he loves like the new book he just finished. And, uh, yeah. And it's like, there's such a straightforward kind of nature with him that I don't know. He's, he's much more chameleonic than you would think just looking at him from the outside. What's interesting about Paul in this book is, or in this movie is that he feels more, um, spiritually connected to William Goldman than he would with like Steve 
Stephen King. Sure. I mean, obviously, because Goldman wrote the screenplay, but even just the way that like Paul is portrayed, like that's how I envision William Goldman. Yeah. Well, Justin also mentioned that there's that line about um, I think there's like a Knicks game in the beginning. Yeah. William, William Goldman's a huge Knicks He's fan. A huge Knicks fan. I think he like missed uh, one of the Oscars or he something did. because he he didn't want to miss the game that night. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's a giant, giant uh, Knicks fan. So that's that's it's hilarious that he uh, that he, he welded that in there. And you know, likability is always you know not a tricky thing to talk about when you're talking about something. But I like Paul a lot mm-hmm. more in the movie totally. than I do in the book because yeah. I think when yet whenever you're that ensconced in somebody's thoughts, like you are in the book, and you know. And especially in a situation where, I don't know, it's going to bring out some dark feelings because we were seeing, I, we talked on the episode at length about whether or not we're supposed to like Paul or not mm-hmm. and, you know, what likability is in the context of that. But I think the movie really allows us to get, you know, on his side to rally behind him because there is a like a, there's a likable aspect to him. And then especially just setting him up in this kind of situation where he's so helpless. It's just hard not to root for him. The, the summation of how much I love him is in uh, just the scene where he's look, like, looking out the window and uh-huh. she waves yeah. and he's just like gives the finger like so that. Like good. it's so, he's so good. Like I, I think that, you know, when it comes to Khan, I, I don't think, I think it's understated and not said enough that he's a very physically like, he's so good at being a physical actor. Yeah. And so much of his performance is in that, that sort of swagger that yeah. he brings to any role. And even if he's playing the victim in this, there is still some sort of like, um, ego yeah. that he has even when he's at his most submissive yeah. and I think that's so crucial to this role mm-hmm. because you know we, we see, obviously see it like in the book like Paul is always trying to outsmart Annie yeah. and, does, and he always thinks that he's smarter than Annie for the most part you know like there's only sections where he starts actually like getting self-deprecating but not really I mean for the most part he's still you know there's that second side of him that 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 doubt that, mm-hmm. that settles in that he kind of has to keep pushing away um but for the most part i feel like in the book and when, maybe that's one of the reasons why we had a pro like like some of us were like hated paul is that there's like a sort of naivete to, to him just like being like no i'm gonna i can get out of this like yeah, I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep figuring this out i'm a writer why can't i fucking figure this out myself mm-hmm. i need to figure it out in real life and that sort of like chip on the shoulder ego comes through with through con like from the beginning and end of this movie. Yeah. Like, I, I, I get the sense that he does feel defeated at times, but I also get the sense that he's never going to give up. Well, and well the, the movie never goes as deep into the, the like, the suicidal thoughts that he has, yeah, like, in right. the book. Like, even because... You know, as much as Paul thinks in the book that he cannot smart Annie, like the futility of the situation keeps weighing on him mm-hmm. and he keeps pushing against it. I think that in the movie, it's never delved in that. They don't still have the time or the resources to get into the the futility of it. So I think and I think Khan's able to I think Khan's able to. Uh, sorry. Uh, the futility of the situation, I think, is something that just isn't able to, um, you know, land as hard in the movie because it's just not that psychological and there isn't enough time that, uh, you know, we can see a little bit more of the fighting spirit of Paul rather mm-hmm. than the push and pull between, like, the, you know, giving up and pushing on. Yeah. Do you guys think that Annie knew that he spiked the wine? You know, he was, he's, you're yeah. really saying that he's always one step ahead because when she comes back in, she accidentally dropped, you know, spills the wine. Do you think that she knew 
I wonder that, that that's just actually like happenstance in that it, scene. It, when I watched it, it struck me as as an as an accident that yeah. it was just uh, bad luck on Paul's mm-hmm. part. Yeah, oh, yeah. God. Like it almost feels like I always say this, but like a Canterbury Tale thing, like where it's just like, oh, nope, it's all the the world's against you, yeah. and it's just that's what's going to happen at this point. Um, yeah, but I did how, wonder if she that's did how I know. read it, but I think it could be interpreted different yeah. ways. Yeah, but but you're also right. Like I mean, he has that knife under the bed for mm-hmm. a long time, and you know, if they were going to go the suicide route, I mean, he could have just slit his wrist <laughs> or something, you know. But yeah. They just don't have time to do that. Yeah, it's like, and I feel like maybe that is one of the things that makes Misery the book kind of a punishing read is that we're really left with a lot of thoughts about death and accepting death and um, giving up. And the movie doesn't go there. And I think that's what allows it to maintain the tone that it has. Like like, Like I said, and it also helps us, you know. Uh, once we get once the sheriff sort of gets killed and we realize that the stakes are probably higher than we thought they were mm-hmm. in the movie, which is such a great like beginning of third act twist, you know, and um, excuse me. And uh, so I think that in the book, though, we it just it, it spirals into extreme periods of like futility and darkness where mm-hmm. the movie just it couldn't go there because I just don't think the movie would have been served by it. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, I'm surprised that none of these actors wanted to take the role because watching him in some of those scenes where he's like roaming around the house and he's trying to get back into the wheelchair and get back to the bedroom. This is such a great role for an actor. Yeah. You get to go like all over the map in terms of emotions and things. Like I don't, this is like, I would be killing to get this role. Do you know what I mean? And to watch these strong actors, these like, you know, these macho men get to explore that side of things for the first time. I mean, I guess I get it if 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 you just don't ever want to be viewed as that kind of a character, but I think he does a fantastic job in those scenes mm-hmm. when he when his legs get knocked when he falls on the ground that first time from yeah. the bed. I mean, you feel it. You, I mean, it's it's he's great. Yeah. Well, you do. It does just raise interesting sort of thoughts that I never really have about an actor's desire to maintain their image. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's like, a big part of it. Yeah, like certain certain uh, roles that they will or won't take because they're worried about how it'll change the narrative of them in society. And that was probably, I mean, especially from you know, like uh, it was a different time in the eighties when they were you know casting this and i think that whole idea of being subjugated by a woman uh, especially an unknown actress uh who you know might who looks like kathy bates like they were like no i don't want to do that well let's i mean think about all the roles that those actors were doing at the time i mean william hurt is the one i'm most surprised of turning down yeah because i feel like he would have this is like perfect for him you know he had done like body heat and all and and obviously like that there, there seems to be he just has that image of a writer too. And I don't really see, I mean, he literally plays, um, someone who, uh, has, a um, uh, libido problems in, uh, in the big chill because of his injuries that, that happened. And I believe it was the war or whatever, but like he, Michael so Douglas he, though, had just played and, Gordon Gecko. And, and that makes sense for him not wanting to yeah, do this yeah. because he's like literally all power Trumpian right, power. Right. Harrison Ford, though, is also another interesting one of like why when because like even just like what you're saying, Mac, like that whole survival mentality of going through the house is all pure Ford, and I just don't see I think why he would have been really good in it too. I, I, it's interesting because Paul, well, James Conn's Paul, you know, he's a he's a pretty buff guy, and they really they really make him seem like he is not very. Uh, just kind of like a Joe Schmo, you know what I mean? Like yeah. when you see his body, I mean, obviously there's prosthetics on his legs to to blow those up, but 
you don't typically see. I mean, there's moments in the beginning of the movie where I'm like, why didn't he just like overpower her then? Yeah. You know what I mean? But they do a really good job of making you just feel like he's he's just not equipped to do that. No, no. Um, and so I think also physically, uh, maybe they just didn't think that they were right for the role. Maybe. I, well, I don't that, know. And that's and that's interesting too because there's some of these some of these actors that are on here that I actually could see doing younger. Like Dustin Hoffman, the '70s would have been great. Yeah, great. But right. Dustin Hoffman in, in like the, the the late eighties, like early nineties. No, I, I can't. I can't see that. And, and like, I could just imagine if it like landed on De Niro's desk. Who at the time, like, if you, you have to like look back, like De Niro was not like as as, as into like doing these crazy different roles. Like Meet the Parents was a big deal yeah. for him to go into make oh, that totally. leap. So for him to get something like this in the desk, he'd be like, absolutely not. I'm not doing. You know, and like also he had just come off of uh, the Untouchables, so I still think he had that sort of um, portly look or, or whatever. So that would have been interesting, right. but. Yeah, I was looking at I was looking at um, Al Pacino just now, and I mean, obviously he had been doing Dick Tracy, but he'd also been playing a lot of detectives and tough sea guys. Sea of Love, like Sea he had of just Love, done. and then also um, Scarface mm-hmm. was well, he was still sort of in the wake of that. So I think that he didn't want to be in a bed, you know. And no. I think that might have been something too. They're just like, I just don't want to be. I mean, maybe that you just don't think about that whole idea. Like they're not thinking about the scene in the kitchen where they go and do all the the body, the physical work. They're just thinking about being in a bed the whole time. Yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing is I think that's interesting, and that's something that Bruce Willis once we talk about the play like bruce talks a lot about the whole idea of being in a bed for 90 yeah. minutes you know and that's interesting well, to me. I, I, but the thing that the biggest mystery because i still i still think dreyfus could do it uh-huh because he is i mean we literally just saw him as a writer in stand by me and he's got a great voice for it um but <laughs> i just don't get why he would turn it down because he was literally doing like nothing around this time like he he had just done always with steven spielberg which i actually don't mind but everyone fucking hates that movie. <laughs> you know i finally um, saw that last year mike yeah, and I, I did not think it was very good well it's okay um i like him in it but it's just not a very good movie i'm he, richard dreyfus <laughs> that's my impression are you uh, what he like, yells that out to annie in the bed i can't i can't <laughs> i'm richard dreyfus damn it <laughs> i can't use this paper annie um, it's smudges, smudges. There's smudges. It smudges on the paper. It means something. Uh, but he had done like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Postcards from the Edge. I guess Postcards from the Edge is a is you know that's a it's a Mike Nichols movie. That's not bad. But it just seems weird that like he would not do this, but then would do What About Bob in 1991. But what which about is Bob? One of the most ugh. classic comedies of all time. Ooh, I that 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 is. If you want to give me a, a like a migraine and, and wait, like, are you serious? Head, you don't I, like What About I can't Bob? Can't stand What About Bob. That to me is like quintessential top three comedy for me from the 90s really i, I adore hard. that oh wow i think it's yeah, hard I, to watch now too because of you know that they didn't really get along oh really i think that's what makes it like the tension is so real yeah dreyfus yeah, hated yeah. bill murray but that's why it almost feels like too real like i can't enjoy the ridiculousness of that and movie. you can see bill murray that's why what about bob is i i I say it's fun now because you see Bill Murray needling him in the movie because oh, okay really? I, knows, I need to rewatch it knowing yeah, that now he yeah doesn't, he knows that Dreyfus doesn't like him and if you watch like the thing is after I learned that and I read like this interview with Dreyfus where he talked about it I I rewatched uh, What About Bob recently because I love that movie and there's certain scenes where like you can see Bill Murray and it's like that's Bill Murray smiling that's not the character smiling because he knows he's getting under Richard Dreyfus well skin. what if Dreyfus was was in this and Bill Murray was Annie <laughs> was <Wilkes>? Annie. <laughs> 
wearing a wig. That'd be oh, no, no, Bill Murray. I can see Bill Murray doing like the the Farnsworth character now. You know. Oh man, he would have been the busted great. character. Like the old Bill Murray as the old Farnsworth Bar- yeah. character. If they, if they remake Misery, which they don't need to do, I don't think they would. Oh my god. He could have walked in and be like, All "Well, right. they did with the stage play, and I think it kind of proved not to." Yeah, yeah let's yeah. let's not do that. Um. So yeah, but um. Yeah. So I I, I think going back to James Conn because I feel like we're giving a disservice <laughs> to him talking like, about everyone like, else. That's like this is the quintessential like what we do is yeah. we just love to talk about actors <laughs> and like the what ifs the what ifs i love yeah. it it's no but i i agree but i i'm so glad james con got cast in this especially because it, it brought about a connaissance as you might want to yes. say um, i mean like after like l- let's go through the before and after really just to get you know to drill it down because we've been kind of just talking about in, you know in generalities but i mean honestly like the 80s he did one two three four five movies in that's the it? entire 80s he did thief well, yeah, I was going to say, then, like, Thief which, was big. Which is, he's great in that. And then he did Kiss Me to Goodbye, which is a Robert Mulligan film starring Sally Field and James, and obviously James Conn and Jeff Bridges. Um, and then he did uh, Gardens of Stone, which is kind of his comeback movie in 87 with Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and that was with Angelica Houston, James Earl Jones, D.B. Sweeney, Dean Stockwell. Ah, Ooh, I love Dean. love Dean Stockwell. And Mary Stuart Masterson. So that was, like, his big comeback. And then... Uh, and then he did do the alienation and um i actually like alienation but he hated it he hated that movie and so he was like pretty miserable yeah like, going into this but yeah if you look back at like all the movies that he did after this like i mean he got he had a he had a pretty good run in the 90s and it, it became like he obviously was probably starting to get some more salary roles again that he didn't you know obviously wasn't having um in previous years so good for Khan. Love Khan. Khan. But oh, wait, by the way, we, we, there's one other uh, supporting member that we didn't uh, mention, and she's a Hollywood diamond. Yeah, we've got to talk oh, about Oh, yeah. Her. I you forgot know. about that. Yeah, I was about to mention that. Well, um, it almost feels like, a, I don't know, it's it, it's a role that I feel like they needed a little more star power, mm-hmm. and they were like, they were like, you know, because we've got Khan, who is not a name right now, yeah. and we've got Kathy Bates, who has never been a name, mm-hmm. and we're hoping to make her one. Yeah. But so, and then we got Farnsworth, who is, you know, nobody's idea of a marquee seller, but yeah. he's a reliable hand. But they need somebody who can add a little wattage to the film. So who did they get? Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Pretty who classic. Was notoriously snubbed by the Oscars when she lost for uh, Mirror Has Two Faces in the 90s. Uh, I remember Mm -hmm. my mom being viciously angry about that. Uh, And I remember the time, like, it was a big deal because she was pretty much like, this is her chance to get the the, the Oscar. Who who was up that year? Um, Well, I'd have to look and and see, but uh, I I do remember being (laughs) very disappointed, uh, being very disappointed when uh, she did not win because, honestly, that was... That was her only. Uh, that was her only her chance. I mean, she obviously got an Academy Honorary Award in, in 2010, but yeah, well, she could like, have been nominated for this. The way that they they'd put nominations up this year. Uh, no, I'm just yeah, kidding. right. Oh my god. Ultimately, <laughs> I think she's a, a great addition. Uh, I really like. I really like these little flashback scenes and things. I like how they flesh out the world a little bit. Yeah. And like you were saying, Goldman had to do that in order to get some of this exposition across and across and across and across. But the world's out there, and to have that picture in your head. Uh, it also is like so pure '90s uh, with her her role. Oh, totally. Just yeah. like when are you going to give me the next novel? Right. And it's then, like such a '90s vision of yeah. what age book agents are. Yeah, like, yeah. and I feel like it's like in um, what do you call it? Uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Yes. When he well, like the way the book agent operates in in the prequel series or the no the sequel series. Yeah. yeah. Um, because he's going to write the book about that, and she's like, "This is going to change the world." Yeah. You know, it's like it's totally a parody of these kind of movie agents, yeah. which is what I love. Yeah. Which is not like that. I mean, I maybe it is maybe it isn't i mean william goldman clearly knows what it's like because he's been through like 
he was he lived through like the golden age of novelists and he's written many books about screenwriting so, yeah, yeah totally so maybe you know i have to imagine there's obviously some uh tr- truth there but i i was hoping that like lauren bacall was the one that comes in and says yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah She's got like yeah, a gun. See, that. that would be the kind of ending that would, that's like the ending of uh, Secret Window, Secret Garden yes. in different seasons. Like, it's that, like, the person who comes and saves them in the end is so absurd. Yeah. Like, it's it's somebody who is, like, just from another corner of the story that should <laughs> never have ended up there. It's so funny. I love ideas like that. But. It just would have been hilarious. Like, we, we, don't, we don't even see her drive or fly <laughs> a plane or anything, but she automatically knows exactly where Annie Wilkes lives. And then they don't even like they, he doesn't even mention it. Like Paul is like, well, there, it's like, what took you so long? And then it just fades. That there's a deleted. There's a, there's a deleted scene where she does show up with a shotgun. She looks at Annie and she says, "Remember me?" <laughs> <laughs> or like it's just like the ending of Frequency, where she just appears at the doorway, just like like older Dennis Quaid. <laughs> oh man! And then Annie's hand starts disappearing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's like, "Oh my God, what's happening to me?" Uh, oh God! Yeah, it's it's nice to see Lauren Bacall. I feel like it might have been. I feel like that's. It just strikes me as almost like, you know, hey, Bill, who do you got in your back pocket that you can, uh, yeah. you know, add here? And he's just like, he's like, let me call Lauren. But it's also <laughs> one of those let me, let great call, casting decisions. Let me call Lauren Bacall. <laughs> it's also one of those great casting decisions, though, because it's like, oh, we know this person. It feels comfortable. You're yeah. getting your cozy. You're in this this scenario in the beginning of the movie where you feel like there is, you're comfortable, you yeah. know, and it's a total, it's a total mislead. Hey, she uh, prompts Buster to uh, to bust his ass and she find, does. Uh, she does. find old Polly. All right, we got to talk about Kathy. Kathy. I think the the number one thing that stands out here, I mean, from you the know, number one fan. <laughs> well, like I love her in this movie. She's really excellent, deserves the Oscar. I'm a huge huge fan of her in this movie. I maybe I'm forgetting it in the book. I don't think I am though. But I found it interesting that the movie sort of really leaned hard into her being sort of like really religious mm-hmm. and puritanical. Yeah, That was a strange choice to me and one I'm not sure I'm really into. No. Because I think in some ways it it tries to couch her mania in zealotry. Yeah. Um, which I understand. I guess that's the, that may be the sort of the 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 illusion that uh goldman's going for here is the idea that you know just like she has faith in god she has faith in misery and in paul you know and it's a it's a it's a relationship that's based on sort of like a religious faith and i see that but at the same time it seemed weird because i felt like they were downplaying the idea that this woman is seriously mentally ill and um like in the book she's clawing her face and bleeding and hurting herself all the time and she gets really depressed like we see that a lot in the uh in the book and that to me is it helps sort of um it helps sort of give a little bit more like danger to the story but also it it couches sort of you know her behavior and her torture of paul and everything Well, takes away some of the depth yeah there's just so much depth there and there's so much like uh uh, there are so much complications sort of with with to do with the fact that there's something seriously broken in this woman's mind and i don't get that vibe in the movie she feels more calculating Mm -hmm. because like i mentioned earlier she she tricks Paul. She says, I'm going to take you to a hospital once the roads clear up or whatever, but I'm just taking care of you now. And there is this sense that she's trying to pretend in the beginning that she's not, you know, holding him against his will and everything, that she's genuinely just helping him. We don't get that in the book. We no. we know he's a prisoner from moment one. Well, and also, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Also, in in the movie, it's it's. You, you believe that she might have been even actually just like stalking him, like following yeah. him. Yeah, which, yeah. Which I, I feel like in the book, she just literally just comes upon him, knows that he lives, or goes yeah. there, writes there and everything. 
But in in this, she She's even like, says like, "Well, I just happened to be like coming home, and I just saw your car, and I was like, oh, why? What is he going out? And there's gonna be a storm and." Totally was following him, like yeah. stalking him, you know? Yeah, because she's more creepy. Because she talks about how she was like looking at him um, in from the hotel window right, and all right. that. And, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, there's definitely a more uh, deliberate reason for why Annie Wilkes is there around Paul that yeah. I think just comes down to like Hollywood having to like worry about the plot holes. Totally. And, you know, oh, and, absolutely. I, and that's the thing is, I'm not necessarily criticizing it. I feel like it was a very deliberate choice on Goldman's part to to um help the the narrative be a little bit easier to follow and the arc the character and the arc be a little bit easier to follow but you know she's got like a cross prominently displayed around her neck she talks about the commitment of marriage a lot uh there's just such a puritanical thing at one point she says god said i delivered him unto you so you should show him the way like yeah. she frames it as a that that her, their relationship is ordained by god and that she's supposed to like lead him towards a next level of being and all this other kind of stuff and then um and then i wrote oh shit jt walsh in my notes <laughs> and then um but then i also kind of i was wondering you know she keeps saying that she was chosen to save him in this in this mm-hmm. movie and that we're meant to be together forever and and then i felt like there was a few moments where i was like is there a romantic interest here and yeah. that's something in the book too i think is is made ambiguous and here i felt that it wasn't ambiguous so much as a little bit confusing because there were moments when i felt like annie's interest in paul was purely spiritual and then other times it was like actually romantic and other times it was just um a fan relationship it is i like that they all kind of blend together and it's not like like i said it's not a huge criticism because i think it mostly works but i thought that they were really deliberate interesting choices on goldman's part to uh you know, assign her a more easy to track um, personality. Yeah, yeah, and I and because honestly, again, you can't get into that mm-hmm. that sort of those sort of complexities that the novel does. I mean, because so much of the novel actually does observe mm-hmm. Annie, and yeah. those observations come from you know Paul's own point of view, but then they also come from like literal facts that we find either through the memories book or mm. through Annie's own confessionals. But you have so much time in the novel to do that, whereas like in a film you're going to have to do be a little more ostentatious about it, which is why I think he kind of leans on the religious fanaticism a yeah. little bit to kind of, again, put those put those plot holes to rest and trying to give it a little bit more weight. Right. I agree with you. I think it's a little lazy. I think it's... I think also, like, when you think about the context of the movie, I'm sure it was pretty brazen. Yeah. Because in the 90s, I don't think a lot of people were really calling that stuff out. Right. Yet, whereas right. now, it's so obvious. Like, right. I mean, think of yeah. how many times in, like, the aughts alone, like, it became, like, religious fanaticism is the reason for everything. Yeah. So I think there's, like, a tired um, uh, sort of uh, apprehension on our part towards that type of stuff now. But I think in the 90s, that was probably, like, oh, wow. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of Christians out there that oh, are like, yeah. fuck this. Like, well, it's, also you know, weird. Seriously. it's also weird because like when they do show the memory book, it's so clear that she's just lost her mind. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's when she's flipping through the book and it's the, the thing is that there's an article that says like the second baby uh, died or whatever, but in the, in scrapbooking letters, it says another baby. Yeah. yeah. It's like so unnerving. Yeah. Yeah, like, that was, that was She's keeping this and like proud of this. Mm-hmm. It's just like, ugh. Well, it makes you wonder, you know, then if she has she feels like she does have some kind of religious mission and that all these murders are sort of born from some kind of spiritual mandate, which is a really fucked up sort of thing. But it points to, you know, I feel like, you know, it's hard, I think, especially to convey 
you know, especially in the early 90s when nobody was talking about it, like to traffic and in, in themes of mental illness and things like that and right. self-harm and and all of that and bipolar disorder and things like that, which is kind of a vibe I got from the book. And it's like but, you know, and I th- but I think that if they really went there with that character, especially the self-harm, uh, that just wouldn't play well. No, no, yeah. I agree. One of the things I really do love is that Reiner – it comes down to casting in terms of being able to create the dichotomy between the two different worlds that we're, you know, we're seeing um, in terms of character. Like, you know, Annie is someone that is outside of the bubble of mm-hmm. the industry, which is what the book really painstakingly details, like yeah. about how she doesn't know the inner like workings of a writer, like mm-hmm. doesn't know that publishing, uh, like that sort of industry. And that creates some tension because she doesn't understand the reasonings for why Paul does what he does. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And it that's really hard to fucking um, portray on screen. But I think they do a great job in that by getting someone like Khan who is a traditional actor that's been in bigger movies. And then you had like Kathy Bates who was all theater uh, trained, who was deliberately – entrenched in performance and doing you know like multiple takes and and really you know practicing again and again and again and Khan wasn't like that at all Khan was so (laughs) laissez-faire about it and there's multiple quotes about this and how she was just so tense and the fact that like well he doesn't care enough and and like she was just like oh really yeah like there was there was like it's like well does she not does he not care like what's going on and Rob Reiner just simply said like look you don't have to worry about that take that as Mm -hmm. that sort of apprehension on your own part and use it to fuel your rage against the character for that. And oh, wow. she apparently used that to to kind of get that that sort of frustration she used in those scenes with That's uh, Paul. interesting. And yeah. I think that really absolutely I think that really kind of captures that that feeling that we get in the book of someone who's a writer that knows this world and someone who's just a fan that's on the outside. And and I mean obviously that's two different polar opposite things that are that are being discussed in, in, in tandem here, but I think one informs the other for sure when it comes to this movie. Um, so I, I, I really like that. Um, and I like that they you have two different approaches to acting here. And I think it does speak to their characters for sure. <laughs> Jimmy's like, I don't do that method shit. Yeah. Like, you know, he's just like, I don't need to practice again. You know, you get one take with Khan. <laughs> um, that's it. No, Look, I got a lunch yeah, one, date. <laughs> one take Khan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do know that, like, I mean, Kathy Bates was like pretty worried about doing like, um, she didn't want to do like multiple psycho roles in this. You know, yeah. she was apprehensive about like, um, doing any more roles after this like she really wanted to like go out and branch out and do different things because she yeah. could easily get in tight gotten typecast for this role right no her next uh-huh. movie she did was well her next big movie she did was fried green tomatoes where mm-hmm. which is a totally different like much more heartwarming kind of <laughs> yeah. thing so yeah. i think that really helped her totally. in terms of building her brand out in hollywood yeah yeah i mean for for me the one thing that i i, I know that like with the violence at the end when they have to like fight and go through the more like horror movie tropes or mm-hmm. like this thriller thriller tropes she was a little apprehensive on that too. Um, you know, there was there was a little overwhelming because it was just it was such a different style of mm-hmm. uh, like acting at that point. I mean, and granted, I think there's a lot of physical performances when you're doing stage work, but I think with like all the makeup and effects, I, it was just such a, a big departure. And I think yeah. for both of them, I maybe Khan not so much because there are a lot of like action scenes and like obviously with Heat and Godfather, he does deal with a lot of like violence and uh-huh. and, and that, that more theatrical violence, but. Yeah, and some of the interviews I was looking at, like that was like a that was a pretty jarring uh, thing for her to get yeah, into. I don't um, doubt it. You know, well that shot of her like knocking her head when she falls yeah. down is like, Whoa. yeah, yeah. And I do like the thing is, <laughs> I, I the the typewriter thing's a little like the fact that she hits it on the typewriter. Yeah, 
seems a little too perfunctory and also just a little too like symbolic i agree but just the visceral aspect of the shot really jarred me yeah 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 so we love uh we love annie wilkes i love kathy she's so good in this excellent and uh it's yeah and i think it's such a cool role to kind of have launched her her sort of a-list you know kind of thing and now she's a stalwart of the American Horror Story franchise. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which do you think she got <laughs> that? Do you think they, they tapped her for those roles because of this movie? Uh, maybe. I mean, I think it, I think breaking out and winning an Oscar for a role like this has always given her the air that, you know, if you want Kathy to go to like be domineering and crazy and like really sort of hold court over, you know, I don't know, with like carry a big stick kind of thing. She can do that. That's not necessarily what she wants to do all the time. But I think that if you need uh, sort of that imposing presence who can also be very charming and very like inviting. Yeah. Then that's who you go to. But I think I think I think she's always had it. She's had a very diverse career herself. I mean, she played Adam Sandler's mom in The Waterboy. You know? <laughs> so it's like she's really built out sort of a, a weird, interesting career. Well, that's so. why I just I love her like eclectic choices that she's always been willing and forthcoming to do. You yeah. Know, like being yeah. able to, you know, shake things up. I will say a lot of her performance here, I think, gets embellished by the way Rob Reiner shoots her. Um, uh-huh. I think those low angle shots yep. are absolutely important. I mean, she's yeah. not that tall, you know. She's only five foot four, um, which I, you know James Conn isn't that tall either. But, but she's but, like hulking in the book, she, though. Yeah, and, she's you, and like that's a force to be reckoned with. It's and, so essential for the story. Yeah. So, th- but yeah, they absolutely shoot her like that. I I think that she really captures the character from the book, though. She did a really mm-hmm. great job in doing that research. I, just that scene when she starts talking about, oh, you know, you, what do you think? I go down to the feed store and this and this and that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like directly from the book and she, she yeah. sells it. Yeah. Like well, how- the, yeah, the monologue about the the chapter plays, oh, man, yeah. like about the Rocket Man and oh, all that. Yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah. So just good. nails it. And you could easily see why she absolutely just ran away with this award uh, when she, you know, went for the Oscar the following year. She beat some big, big names. I, I take that back. She didn't just run away with it, but like she really fucking conquered a yeah. hard category. I mean, she was up against some titans. Angelica Houston for the, for the Grifters. Grifters. Uh, Meryl Streep, Postcards from the Edge. Uh, Joanne Woodward for Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. And, and Julia then, Roberts, Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman was huge. Yeah. Huge. And I, I have to imagine she was the favorite at that point. How great. To, to beat out all those in that movie too and in that role yeah <laughs> that's crazy and, and and it's like and her speech is is unreal it's, yeah. it's unreal let's actually listen to it real, real quick yeah i'd like to thank the academy i've been waiting a long time to say that um i would like to congratulate all the nominees this evening especially those in this category their work continues to humble and inspire me. I would like to thank everyone associated with Misery, Columbia Pictures, Castle Rock, Andy Scheinman, Rob Reiner for giving me a chance. I'd like to thank William Goldman for bringing the wonderful, crazy Annie Wilkes to the screen and Stephen King for thinking of her in the first place. I would like to thank Jimmy Kahn and apologize publicly for the ankles. And I would like to say that I really am your number one fan, Jimmy. I would like to thank the cast and the crew of Misery. They're incredible. They were a pleasure to work with. And I would like to thank my friends watching from New York at the Sea Palace on Ninth Avenue. And uh, I would like to thank my, my family, my friends, my mom at home, and my dad, who I hope is watching somewhere. I would like to say thank you. 
Thank you very much. I love that she thanks Stephen King mm-hmm. in that speech. Right. You know, and she's just so she's so shocked when she actually hears because I, I I really just don't think that she thought she was going to win. I mean, she makes the joke that it was just like, oh, I finally got here. And, you know, she which is kind of like tongue in cheek and some people laugh, too, because she had just really started. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think this was an upset. I think people probably thought uh, Meryl Streep or Julia Roberts were easily right. going to run away with this, right. especially Julia Roberts, because if I recall, like everyone was talking about Julia Roberts around this time. So. And they haven't stopped. They really haven't. I mean, every time she comes back, it just seems to be this big hey, thing. But homecoming, America's I mean, it's sweetheart. A weird year, though. I mean, you had Ghost, that was uh, that 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 had been, like that um, you had Ghost Awakenings, The Godfather Part Three, Goodfellas, Goodfellas, yeah, uh, Dances with Wolves. Yeah, it was a big year. It was a huge year. Yeah, very eclectic. I can't remember an Oscar season that was this eclectic in terms of the type of offerings that you're going to have. Maybe the following yeah. year with like. Um, or the year after that with like a Silence of the Lambs and all. But mm. very eclectic wins, too. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg wins for Ghost that year for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, that was a big one, too. Uh, Best Supporting Actor is Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. Uh, Jeremy Irons for Reversal of Fortune for Best Actor, which I haven't, I've never seen that movie. No, I haven't either. And then mm-hmm. Best Actress, Kathy Bates, Misery. I mean, literally four different films winning in different categories. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I love when that happens. I love when you can actually kind of spread the wealth a little bit. And I love when uh, Stephen King can uh, win some, some awards. <laughs> I want to say this is the only Oscar uh, given to a Stephen King property. Uh, I believe, yeah, that's the case. Yeah, which is, uh, which is unbelievable given that, you know, you have Shawshank and The Green Mile yeah. and... All yeah, I've been nominated movies. for other things, but uh, yeah, yeah. If you had to give an award, all right. So we all agree that Kathy Bates easily mm-hmm. out of all the performances in any of the Stephen King movies adaptations, probably the most deserved of all of them. Mm-hmm. I would say that like, I'm glad that she got this award. Great. What are some other ones that you would say like that? You know, for probably, this movie in particular? No, not even just for this movie. Just in general. Oh, other King, King ones. Yeah, like I mean, I haven't seen like green mile in a long time but i remember that being really really good yeah um and i think that michael clark duncan like probably could have you know i would have been happy with him winning yeah for that movie because it was a you know it was like kathy bates it was this actor who had been around been working the biz for a really long time and then somebody gives him that opportunity yeah and i feel like king has sometimes been really good about that i mean like i feel like in several different projects people who get in a King property, they get to play a role that they never probably thought they could have played before because, you know, oftentimes he's writing very unconventional characters. And I think that that's really fun. Yeah. And a cool part of his, um, you know, of his work. And so, so you're going with Clark Duncan. Yeah, I'll go with Clark the Duncan. The late Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah, I know. Very sad. I mean, it's sad that he was married to Omarosa too, but what are mm, you going to do? Yeah. What about you, Mac? Who would you give an Oscar to in uh, any of the King? I would King's probably menu? best supporting for Freeman. Yeah. As red, mm-hmm. yeah, or maybe even directing for Bear, for Darabont for Shawshank, yeah, yeah. direction yeah. especially is such a well directed movie S- holds up so well, or screenplay yeah. for Shawshank, yeah, it's a great screenplay, it's yeah. a great adaptation. It's kind of, it's, it's just unreal that none of the that, that movie didn't walk away yeah. with anything. It elevates the sh- story so much, yeah. Which I th- yeah, so I I'm gonna change. I love you, Mark Michael Clark, but uh, I gotta say, more than anything, I think Shawshank deserved a screenplay Oscar. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I will go with um, for me. River Phoenix and Stand By Me. Ooh, he's so good. I think he deserves the the Academy Award in that. He should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and I think it's hard for kids to to win awards. In, yeah. Uh, 
in these categories. But at least a nod. Yeah, but at least a nod. That and I think nice. that 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 was deserved for for sure. And I also feel like for directing uh for Rob Reiner. Like I think he absolutely deserved a nom and I absolutely I think he should have won. I mean, I think it's one of the more timeless movies and to have that sort of power over multiple generations in hindsight now, like yeah, that he deserved an award. Uh, another one, Damian Lewis and Dreamcatcher. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thomas Jane, Tom in, Jane. in Dreamcatcher. Not even for the mist. Uh, <laughs> you're not. You're not Jonesy. That's that, that's yeah. the clip. That's the only clip they show yeah. at the Oscars. <laughs> So what, what, what year is that? 2003? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so 2003. So, so it was around the same time that like, oh God, what was, what was even some of the nominations then? Oh God, um, I don't remember. I, I can't remember, but I would just love to see that clip of like, you're not Jonesy. Thomas Jane for the dream catcher. The dream catcher. The dream catcher. <laughs> you know, um, uh, we had uh, the pianist, uh, okay. Chicago, the hours, <laughs> Richard Gere in the, in Chicago. Adrian Brody in The Pianist. Thomas oh. Jane in The Dreamcatcher. Thomas Jane, The Dreamcatcher. Uh, beat out Chris Cooper in Adaptation. <laughs> oh, my hey, hey, God. Having said all that, we love you, Tom. Uh, we love, love Tom. We love Tom, Tom, love Tom. One day, uh, I, you know, maybe based on 1922, I think he's got some range that he can make it, make it happen. But I want to make something else happen, and that's uh, a nap. Uh, I am exhausted. I'm very tired. I need some... Nightmares and dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. Whew. I am plagued by nightmares. I know. I need some Benadryl to go to bed. Yeah, seriously. I actually genuinely am in real life. I've talked about this in the pod before. Well, I mean about this movie. <laughs> oh, uh, well, no. Are, do you have a lot? Of, <laughs> do you? You're not plagued. Okay, you're plagued in real life. No, I will say I. I actually I. I quite like this movie, but I don't think I. I just think in retrospect, um, in hindsight, as you were saying earlier, mm. uh, and especially having just read the book, I. I like the movie, but I do feel like some. I feel like certain nuances of the relationship between Paul and Annie and and certain aspects of Annie's um, character are just kind of they're kind of lost in sort of the the needs of the screenplay, yeah. i.e. adding supporting characters to flesh out the context and the the you know, the circumstances and the exposition. Um, and I sort of just feel like certain some of the more it's like it's really hard to convey pain mm-hmm. you know on on film and man James Khan does a great job of it but at the same time his legs are so shattered and the hobbling happens and everything but then later in the movie you've got him jumping out of out at her from a wheelchair and it's like I just I don't buy it you know mm-hmm. what I mean I don't buy like that and because I feel like things just move too quickly in the book you really you know you're you're drudging through it all with him and so and you're you're watching the calendar pass and pass and pass and the sense of time and the sense of um of embeddedness i guess is is something that it's really hard to convey yeah and i feel like that's one one way in which the movie it, it all feels like it happens too fast and it feels a little bit too streamlined for me to really buy um the the hatred that paul has for annie and like and also just the real nuances of her relationship with him you know like in the book one of the things i was marveling at that we talked about on the episode was how much 
she loves him and mm-hmm. hates him simultaneously. And like, it's like, cause when she is mean to him, it is so pitch black and yeah. we don't see that as much here. We see that she's crazy, but we never see sort of like, we get a few scenes and I'll talk about that in the dreamscape section, but, um, where we get to see Annie in a more subdued state and a more emotional state. And I just wanted more of those because, yeah. um, I just wanted that relationship to be drawn out, to be explored just a little bit deeper. So there is a part of me that feels like the movie almost slips through my fingers as I mm-hmm. watch it. But overall, though, I mean, I, I do really love it. But I think that's me just more saying, you know, on a deeper level, it feels like in that trip to film, something is missing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that one of the problems I have with it is that you don't really get the claustrophobic tension as yeah. much as you do with the book because you have Richard Farnsworth to kind of keep popping back to, mm-hmm. uh, which in a way I do appreciate because it helps the flow of the film. And I think it's smart if you're looking at it from trying to sell a, a very dark, macabre novel to a more massive mainstream audience. I think that helps for sure. And I can see why Goldman decided to um, you know, design this character. But yeah, I think like if you had didn't have that, you would be able to have this sort of like bottled drama mm-hmm. and be able to get more into the nuances that you're discussing yeah. here. I mean, I think that that is one of the the big downfalls of having any adaptation of a book that's literally takes place in the mind of a person. Like mm-hmm. you're just never going to be able to get that depth. And I think they do a pretty good job in getting it. I, I, I like I actually do buy the hatred at the end, but at the same time, I do miss that that sort of gray area that's in the book where you, they kind of do actually become a writing team together. Yeah. yeah. And that's really great. And mm-hmm. I, and I, and I kind of like that. And I guess they kind of established that somewhat with the, the dining room scene, because there is something sad about the fact that like she does really love him in this and you see that. That's a great scene. And I love yeah, that. That's scene. in my dreams. And that's, section, and that's, yeah. yeah, the same here. So I do think, again, it's there's a lot of, for any negative I have in here, I do have like sort of like an asterisk over it because yep. I, I can see how they did all these things and I understand why they adapted it because I think this is a very, you know, tough as nails script that it's it's just very, it's a, like it has all the essentials in it, you yeah. know, and, I, and again, that's a hallmark of Goldman, but um, there are some things that having just read the book, obviously you're going to have that, that, that those right. things left over that you would yeah. want. Um, I still don't like the the um she comes back yeah because it's not necessary i mean it's it's and also in this movie the you have that sort of poetic ending where she hits her head on the typewriter only to come back again for what five seconds for a jump scare like it seems it just seems so like hollywood at that point Mm -hmm. and i just felt that that it kind of kills like any sort of poetic symbology that you're trying to have with her dying on the typewriter. Yeah. Like, why would you make that, that change if she's just going to come back and pop up again? Yeah. And I also love the, in the book, how she, she does get up and go to the barn, but you don't see it. No, she dies later on in the barn. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know that she did get back up. That's, it's almost more creepy that way. Obviously at that point with the height, the heightenedness of it, of that sequence, yeah, I get why they did that. I think that that's with the whole movie. I, I understand why they made the changes they did. I think the movie works really well in that sense. The only things that I didn't like, uh, probably, um, where's JT Walsh? What? <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, other than JT Walsh not being in a lot of this movie, uh, I didn't, something I didn't really like at the beginning or the first half or even the whole thing, there's a lot of stuff in the room. Yeah, and I just felt like there's multiple scenes where he's like in the wheelchair trying to get out of the room, and there's things in there like vases and things that he could break, make weapons out of. Mm-hmm. You know, when he has all that time there, 
and it just didn't I just wanted that room to be more barren. Yeah, that's and, a good and point. it kind of bothered me. And Justin was trying to convince me. He's like, Well, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. But I, I just I don't know, that did bug me in the movie, some of the set dressing in, in the actual room. I mean, we're getting nitpicky now, you know what I mean? Yeah, we but, are. We are, but but, uh, yeah. but then that's the thing. It's like it's it's such a good movie. I mean that yeah, I, I, I mean I I do love it, yeah. Yeah. I, I my my thing also is the um you know, the that's the sort of ending that we get. Which is, and again, a lot of it plays into what we were discussing with like the religious fanaticism mm-hmm. is that at the time this was a great and like this is a really original style ending of like, oh, look, it's the, the waiter. Oh, wait, no, it's not Annie. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's just a waiter or whatever. That became such a trope in horror movies like following this that going back and rewatching like that sort the, of thing. Like the descent ending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, where it just becomes sort of like eye rolly, you know, but at the same time, I, it works because that's the psychology. It shows the yeah. PTSD that, that, that Paul has, but mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. It, it just seemed a little, gonna... it seemed a little too, it, it could be considered as hokey c- given the dramatic nature of this movie. I yeah. Feel. Yeah. I you agree know? with that. But, um, I'm actually feeling a little bit better now that I've, I've wrestled through some of my nightmares. Uh, <laughs> and I think we should kind of talk about some of our better dreams. I yeah, agree. Let, let me start off with my first dreamscape, mm-hmm. which is the ending of this movie. Oh! <laughs> See, I really I really like the ending of this yeah. movie. It's really, even though, yes, you're right, it, they have done this a billion times yeah. since then, and probably even before. I, I can't think of anything, but I that ending is really really unnerving because I felt like that's something the book lacked even though I still give it five five noses the book five noses no problems with it um but in the book there's a lot of moments where he comes home and she's like jumping out from behind the couch she's jumping out and that in a book makes that worked for me in the book but I was like I don't think that they couldn't do that in the movie without it being really really super hokey but I like that it's just you know she's just walking down the aisle and you know it's not her but you're still you're still unnerved mm-hmm. even though you know it's not her and then when she says oh yeah I'm your number one fan and I, I don't know I just, I just think that that that's just such a good sting to the end of that movie and obviously they would continue to do that trope billions of times afterwards so you know yeah uh, it worked worked for me, and it still works. Um, some of the other stuff that I love, again, Buster. I, I mean, William Goldman, I just love the, his adaptation. Yeah. I think that he he took what could have been a, just a dismal two-hour, you know, descent into madness and really turned it into something enjoyable. Like, I could rewatch this movie a bunch. Oh, yeah. You know, like, I do like the the balance. Because if you're going to do the book the way that, it should be done. I think it needs to be a miniseries, like an HBO miniseries, like a, a, a multiple night where you you do get the length of time. You mm-hmm. do get to see the descent mm-hmm. into like, you know, the thoughts of suicide and all this stuff. So you get, you understand why he does what he does and all that. Yeah, because if you do that, I can imagine them actually filming sections of what he's writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and, right. You know, like, you can yeah, you almost see, see those in his head. sequences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other other dreamscape stuff. I, re- I mean, I love a lot of it. Goldman's in my dreams for sure. <laughs> I, I, I think because I, I love a lot of his dialogue in this too, um, and the stuff that he adds, and and a lot of it is it's that dining room scene. I mean, that's that's one of my favorite scenes so good. because yeah. it's so it, it's not in the book um, in terms of like the him like taking the the, the poison and all, mm-hmm. or not the poison, but the pills and all. Um, but it it shows that human side um, that could have been yeah. that I love in the book where you yeah. kind of see those little things that peek out that even Paul acknowledges where it's like, well, that maybe that could have been Annie had she not been all messed up and everything. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there, I think there's a lot of uh, pathos on both sides um, 
uh, for for them. Yeah, I think just the dialogue in general is really good. I was thinking that. And like Buster has a line early on. My wife was watching like the first bit of the movie with me and she's like, that's such a Stephen King line. And I go, that character wasn't in the book. Like, that's a William Goldman line. And she's like, well, he knows how to approximate like the language of King, which yeah. I thought is a good point, yeah. you know, like the, yeah, he's in a, he, and like I was, when I was reading interviews with Goldman, he was very much like, like, you know, when I write a screenplay for somebody, I know that I am not like the person in charge. Mm-hmm. I am writing to influence other people's vision, you know, like I have my screenplay, but I'm working with the people who are going to bring this to life. Mm-hmm. Will that be the producers, the director, everyone else? So when he's adapting material, you can tell, and especially because he calls King his hero, you can tell that he's really trying to make sure that the language he writes fits in with the language that King writes. And you can hear that. And it's like very charming and very, and it's very good. So dialogue wise, I think it really moves. It really cracks like the, the interweaving of, of direct sections from King's book works really well with the original characters and everything. Like I can totally see Buster being a Stephen King character. Yeah, so. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But but his death, man, like when he gets shot by Annie, that is like such good filmmaking and right. it's such good storytelling. It's like yeah. and uh, it really, really works it, much more than I think her running over the cop's head with a lawnmower <laughs> yeah. does, you know, yeah. which yeah. is a little silly. I think the buildup of the tension, that quick shot of Paul at the bottom of the stairs, like reaching up, you know, and then yeah. cut to him getting shot. I mean, that's just powerful shit. So. Yeah. Yeah, really, really good. I, I agree 100 percent. I also um, like you're saying I like the score. I think the yeah. score is good. Uh, I, I I think the the direction is really solid. I love those scenes when the winner you know is pounding. And you see him like writing on the typewriter. All those montages. Um, it's a different approach uh, to you know it's a different lens to a Stephen King uh, novel there, than you know than Stand by Me, which had like some of the more bluish hues and all. So yeah. I like that sort of uh, different approach because he could have easily just leaned back on how he did it with Stand by Me. Mm-hmm. This just seems to be a little bit more. Uh, uh, just captures the surroundings a little bit better. So I think Reiner is an MVP of this too. I think yep. he he really had an eye for this for yeah. sure, which is why I really wish that he would have done more adaptations of King's work. And maybe he still can. I mean, he's still alive. So he did adapt know. King's The Bucket List. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's one of my favorite. Yeah, uh, that's another like King late classic. '90s King classics. Yeah. 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 We'd oh, also Lord. see the return of Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. Yeah, to the King universe. Yeah, to yeah. The King that's universe. That's true. When they're playing their respective roles too in that movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, another big dream. JT Walsh. <laughs> yeah. Love, love JT seeing JT. Walsh. Yeah. Even if yeah. it's for a hot minute. <laughs> I think. I think honestly, the chemistry between um, Bates and Khan is is just perfect. Yeah, and, it works. Yeah. You know, and I, and I and I really do think that sells this movie for sure. I don't think this movie would work if the two of them didn't click in some way, and they totally do in this. So. Yeah. Uh, I think it's time for uh, for us to get out of bed <laughs> and take a walk. And I'm not going to go for a nice, friendly walk. I'm going right into the cemetery. <laughs> What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because... Whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. <laughs> what did we find scary in Misery? Okay, I've got a couple things right off the bat. His legs, when they first show his legs, yes, 
it's not as bad as the book description, but oh, it is something to behold. And yeah, that is um, it just ugh, it just creeped the me. The puffiness out. and bloatedness yeah. of the especially left foot. The, yeah, especially the feet. Yeah. Oh. Well, when even the beginning, Gosh. when he's like, when like right when he's taken in, his legs are fucking huge. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. You just see just how screwed he is with his legs Oof. here. Yeah, um, they do a good job of conveying that because it's such a big part of the book and, and just how broken his legs are. And I feel like they do a good job of, of showing that. Well, here. the thing that really sells it is when she's like, I love you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just so menacing. And, and it's not it's not tongue in cheek at all. It just it does feel like it's coming from a manic, wild, mm-hmm. wild eyed person. And I. I love. I actually prefer the hobbling to the actual like cutting off the leg because I think the cutting off the leg thing is just a little too much. Like it's a little too Evil Deadish for me. Like yeah, I, I, I love it in the book, but at the same time, like even just the whole cauterizing thing, I just can't see it on screen without it looking just taking this movie to another level. Like I think the hobbling was the right choice. In that yeah, movie. I agree. I I think that is it, there's something about breaking the bone in that manner um, that makes me cringe more than just a clean chop of the foot and then although i will say you know well it wasn't clean the cauterizing yeah that (laughs) that would have been something else but we're talking about the movie yeah and i think that it works really well and is extremely effective the shot is to me stomach churning Mm -hmm. when she hits his foot and you see it like a flash flash just a little flash and they used like gelatin in like a fake leg in there so it made it that like wobbly feel it's so gross yeah i'm cringing right now and i'm closing my eyes i know and i love that and i feel like that's it's it's if they had chopped the foot off it wouldn't be as powerful Mm -hmm. it's it was an image that i feel like hadn't been seen and i don't know hadn't been seen like that before in film and it still wouldn't to this i've seen similar effects like it you know since then in movies and every time like like arms or legs dangling in directions or moving in directions they shouldn't will always really upset me i've seen it live too like it have like i've seen people break their arms in person like yeah at concerts and like in mosh pits and shit and it's like so so disturbing Mm -hmm. i know like we're all like shivering (laughs) i just think like bones breaking or coming out of the skin or just yeah or or hyper extending your knee or something like oh god just stuff like that really really gets me so i the hobbling really did it for me i mean i think that's the, that's the key yeah. scene for sure. I think yeah. that everyone's going to take away from that. I, I agree. It's, it, it's it's so weird. Like you never think of, oh yeah, that that is something that you could do without having to resort to like, cutting limbs off and all. Now, now here's <laughs> something that not everybody can probably uh, relate to or think is scary, but you both are writers and have written some some things. Now, if you were faced with that decision to burn your book, you don't have a copy. Mm-hmm isn't that horrifying yeah would you have done it would you have done it would you have been able to do it uh, i think i mean obviously when she starts dousing a kerosene yeah (laughs) i would have been like give me the match yeah i mean (laughs) if i had if it had been written under those kind of circumstances like you know i probably wouldn't have well i mean i mean the manuscript burning the the beginning oh yeah well um a i would never be so stupid to only have one copy (laughs) of it no it's superstition it would be hard when this is true when i was in college when i was like a freshman in college i was writing a book and i had written about a hundred and like 175 pages like handwritten and i didn't or not handwritten uh, written on on a floppy disk and it was literally on a floppy disk and that was my only copy was like this is similar to the sense that i only had it on the floppy disk and this was pre like google docs and everything and cloud and all that so i only had it there and i remember one night i was working on it at my parents house and i had spent you know the good part of a year on it and 
uh, something happened. I, it was an old computer. Like this is, you know, a while ago and, uh, like the computer like crashed. And when I booted it up again, the floppy disk had been erased and I don't know how that happened, but oh. I lost the entire, uh, you know, file that I've been working on. Um, you know what I did was I, I actually was so devastated that, um, I was so mad that I wrote something new. I, I I wanted to just like funnel all my anger into something. So I wrote a story based on uh, – it was based on some – I can't remember like exactly what the, the spark of it was. But I wrote the meanest, ugliest, grossest, strangest story I'd ever written. I wrote it all in one sitting, which was very rare for me. And I stayed up all night writing it. It was called Ramble. And then I never showed – I showed it to maybe three or four people in my entire life. But I – I was so into it, but it was also I would have been embarrassed to show mm. it to people because it was really weird. And um, but then I ended up using that uh, that that story as the inspiration for a play I wrote that ended up winning me uh, an award that really helped my play. So it worked career. out. So in a way, it was like you know one thing leads to the other, mm. and uh, and that was a story that I still kind of draw upon sometimes in terms of um characters images ideas because i thought that there was a lot of really good stuff in there so i think as a writer it's like sometimes losing something or the create or the destruction of something um is horrible but sometimes it can propel you in a new direction so it's very much like like annie was a force for good kind of like did she did help him with the next book in a way she even says in in the movie Yeah. yeah so it's it's interesting to me i i i will always remember like losing that book and uh and that draft but the thing was when i reflect on it i think i had i was having a lot of trouble with it like that that 175 page thing and i was maybe starting to lose some passion for it so in a way it kind of freed me in a weird way i look at at least that's what i tell myself in retrospect yeah but i lost a lot of good writing in it and it was a bummer but you know it's uh it it made me think of that when i was watching fast car you know get burned although it's untitled in the movie it is yeah yeah Yeah. because fast car is a shitty name for a (laughs) that is pretty that is true (laughs) That is true. Um, yeah, I mean, f- I, I, I don't have a story for like that. I, I've definitely had situations where I've edited uh, files, especially for the, even the show. And I just like w- like an idiot didn't push save. Yeah. And, like I was remastering one of the older episodes yesterday and um, spent like 45 minutes on it. And I did not push save. And GarageBand like fried Ugh. and just uh, conked out. And then when I restarted it and they had the autosave. It like because it was I was working from a hard drive, it couldn't register the auto save right, so I had to start all over again. And Ugh, yeah, I was doing laundry, so I just went into the laundry room and I just like like screamed a little bit. But um, <laughs> I was like, "You did it! You did it!" Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing in that sense. But in terms of like other things that are terrifying in this movie, mm-hmm. I would say you had mentioned it earlier, uh, Mac. But like the little notes that she has in her memory book are pretty terrifying. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't really notice that until this watch. Uh, but it is unnerving to see the like the fondness and the admiration, just the the scrapbooking yeah. around the pictures. If you if you have a chance, take a look at those because it's really unnerving. Yeah, yeah. And then I I think there that scene where um you know Paul is alone in the house, and you kind of get the that it's I mean it's straight from the book, but you see like all these little dated trinkets. It kind of reminds me of um the scene in Psycho. When they're wandering oh, around yeah. the Bates house, and you see like Aunt, his bedroom, his bedroom yeah. and it's like still, still a little boys' room. Yeah, yeah, it's like there's something like really scary about what her world is like when out when when she's not when nobody's there. Yeah, yeah, and that's always terrified me. You get that that you re- like Reiner does a really good job in capturing this feeling of like you should not be here. 
and because obviously Paul shouldn't be, um, but that, that feeling of like, he really shouldn't be out of the, the room that he's in. And you get that tension of like, okay, so she's out and gone, but there's the way that everything is orchestrated in the house is in, just in such a manner that like nobody should see this and it's only hers. And there's something very personalized about the way that she has everything put in yeah. this house. And I think the, the film captures that because the book definitely has that for sure. Especially um, just the whole sequence of him trying to get back into the room. Yeah. It's terrifying. Oh, I love, oh, that's, yeah. that, that scene so is well so done. good. Yeah. Classic, like sort of like Hitchcockian uh, style thriller, oh, which yeah. apparently Reiner was like hugely uh, influenced by yeah, going totally. into this. Um, the, uh, like Khan uh, recalls uh, a situation where <laughs> like Reiner's scolding himself like on set, just being like, who do you think you are? Like <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, like to himself. <laughs> Uh, so I love that like self-deprecating uh, manner that he has there. Uh, but uh, anything else that scared everyone? Uh, I mean, the sheriff getting shot. I think yeah, it's a great yeah, shot and yeah. um, really works and totally surprised me. I don't know if it. I mean, it scares me because I feel like it's the moment when the when the stakes really really raise mm-hmm. and uh, like they're continually getting raised, especially with the memory book. But uh, yeah, once she just fucking blows his chest out with the gun it's like oh we're in a different playing field now and i think it's just a great moment just in terms of filmmaking and storytelling i I think it's kind of interesting that they're that they negated to to include some of the easier scares from the book you know like the mop bucket like they could have easily done that yeah yeah i I love the mop bucket because i think that happens pretty early on and i think that she was still under the guise of maybe helping him yeah i mean I mean, it's very intentionally um, cruel early on. So yeah, I agree. Maybe it would have just jar- been yeah. too jarring. But I like, I, especially those sequences with her where she's just drifting off. She's oh, standing, yeah. She comes yeah. in, gives him something. And he's like, uh, you know, he, even he's like, not concerned, but he's like, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And she's just like in that mode. I mean, she does that so well. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. It's creepy. I still wish that, uh, I like that we get to see the upstairs. Uh, in yeah, this, <laughs> this because time in the, we get to in the book, uh, you yeah, don't. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was really happy that we got to see yeah. the upstairs uh, area. So. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's all that scared me. Should, should we take a stroll out of uh, the cemetery? Yeah, I'm getting a little scared. I'm, I'm getting a little scared, and I'm also getting a little hungry. <laughs> and I, I'm in the mood for some pound cake, and I'm, God, I really hope that this uh, convenience store across the street has some, so let's go take a look. <laughs> After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray, ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. Well, unfortunately, I think our bellies are, are going to be rumbling still because there's not yeah. a lot of pound cake here. I will uh, say I I love the I'd say the interplay between Richard Farnsworth, with the sheriff and his wife. There's definitely a lot of like sex talk and stuff like that. But I I think it's funny and I think it's a good example of pound cake. Like, yeah, like I've, I quoted the line earlier, but like when his wife's like, he's probably out having an affair somewhere like that line made me laugh so hard because it's like a it's a hilarious thing to say about your husband and be just like the completeness of it, like having an affair somewhere, like just the idea that there is a specific place and he is there to have an affair. Well, it's also these like sort of fantastical notions. Like it reminds me of the old lady and Tommy boy. Yeah. It's like, that's when the whores come in. (laughs) It's just like jump to conclusion. You're like, what? Like, uh, and I love all the sarcastic remarks from her. And he's like, that's that, there's that spice that, you know, you know, I love, I just love it. Or no, wait in the car when she makes a move on him. Yeah. She does. It's yeah. like, her hand yeah. like, what are you like, doing? You know, like, when you're in this car, you're my dad. Yeah. So there's some pound kick there. Um, <laughs> yeah. what but about it's, the, but it's, it's like, it's, it's very natured tasty. and it's very, yeah. it's very tasty and tasteful. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and w- saying I, and, it's and, very tasty is the pound cake. And what's podcast. funny is that all of the pound cake that is in this movie that is tasteful 
is Goldman. Yeah. <laughs> none of that's in the book. Yeah. That's yeah. True. And so, there's, and, funny. and the movie keeps Annie very unsexualized. Yeah. Like there's no, like that's, that was something we talked a lot about was the, you know, the ways that King inevitably sexualizes his women um, to some degree. Uh, like the fact that, you know, the moment we meet Annie, there needs to be a comment about her breasts, you know? Well, it's, it's interesting because I, I do have some pound cake that's behind the scenes. Oh, bring oh. it. So Rob Reiner, when she, when he was talking to uh, the New York times in 1991, <laughs> uh, he was dis- discussing how like, you know, Kathy Bates has the demureness of a, like a Southern womanhood. Um, and he goes, uh, her mouth is unbelievably sexy. Those fat lips. Oh boy. <laughs> Reiner, you dog. You know, I I just... uh, But here's the thing, though. I actually think Kathy Bates is really attractive in this movie. I I really do. I think there's something sexy about her uh, that that comes through in just the... the, There's a youthfulness to her that, you know, we don't get to see a lot because I feel like she got a lot of adult roles later on after this because, again, it's Hollywood and they're like, oh, well, we we can't have... We got to have someone that's very, like, slim and very, you know, sexy to to be in all these other roles. Like, I feel like she, she has this this youthfulness that she doesn't really have in roles after misery for some reason. Yeah. I, you know? Yeah. I see that. So I, I don't know. I, but yeah, I mean, we don't ever uh, get to see them go to the bone zone, which would have been interesting. <laughs> would have been nice. Like maybe there was a draft that Goldman had where he just was, was like misery of the pig. Yeah. Oh <laughs> like, God. <laughs> it was like black mirror or something. Um, now, Paul, you have to have sex with misery. It's your character. Um, I don't give a cock a like, You, 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 you know, better put how, your cock a yeah, in that pig. Oh, God. Um, what, Hashtag cock in that pig. I think there was a cut scene also where, like, uh, James Conn starts drawing, um, you know, like, porn on, on his, uh, on his like, little notepad and then starts, you know, masturbating to it. But oh, can't um, be true. I did wonder, reading this book, and this maybe this seems a little too crazy, but look, we we the human humans need to to get off. They need to have that sort of sexual. Uh, they have that sexual tension all the time. You were missing the masturbation sequences. I, I, if we're being realistic, like I feel like Paul probably would have masturbated while he he's talked been about in his I, pelvis being all fucked up. I, in the book. Yeah, mm. I also think on all the drugs that he had, I don't think his business was working correctly down there. <laughs> well, I just wanted a scene where we see James Con masturbating, but jeez. Um, <laughs> Hey, he's still alive. He's still making movies. Maybe yeah. that dream will come true. Yeah, with his pulled back face, we have him uh, masturbating now. Um, yeah, we're like we're dreaming of pound cake in the pound cake section. I know. Well, that's what's happening. You know, we we gotta we gotta bring it if it's not there. <sighs> well, we okay. scooped up the crumbs. Where to next? I guess King's Dominion. King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. So, King's Dominion. There's so many references to the Dark Tower in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just kidding. But no, uh, Mac, you say you have some Room 237s. I do. Uh, <laughs> at one the, point, the there's the a montage is- when he's writing, and they they do show Chapter 19. Yes, ah. they do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She says that she discovered the Misery books when she was doing the night shift ah. at the hospital. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but other than other than that other than those two big ones um, well and then you have just the fact that well i think it's nice that you know jt walsh would show up in another Steve king property mm-hmm. and so so would she yeah um wish Khan was in more oh man i, do too. I, I, I can't think of Khan is alan pangborn <laughs> alan pangborn yeah. oh, no, he would oh, actually be a good pangborn alan connection uh grabs another one <laughs> I would say I'm surprised that the I, mean, I guess I'm not surprised that they don't have any references to The Shining in this because of the studio 
right? I mean, it was this was distributed by Columbia. Even though Columbia and Warner had partnerships in the past, I don't think they would have the rights to use the, oh, the, the Shining. Look. Well, they also changed the name. It's not Sidewinder. It's not in the movie. No, yeah. no. So. Would have been interesting if uh, they would have uh, been able to drive by the uh, the old exterior from <laughs> The Shining when he's driving there. Like when, when when Paul's driving the very beginning, you just like see him go by the hotel and he's like, "Hey," or something like that, <laughs> like waves to it. I was missing a lot of the the Paul Sheldon like talks with like Pascal, like oh, when he's yeah. losing his mind. Pascal comes over and he's like, "I'm come from Ludlow, Maine, all the way here to fucking Colorado." Howdy. Uh, he's um, like, "I think I'm going to finish this book. Uh, I, I'm feeling ho- hopeful that I'm going to finish this book." And then, like, you just hear see Pascal in the corner. He's like, "I'm not." Um, <laughs> well, love that. We, before we move on to our final thoughts, why don't we use this since it's the Dominion, mm-hmm. the larger Dominion? We can talk about uh, basically how this movie sort of manifested outside yeah. of Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, there were there's been two stage adaptations mm-hmm. of of misery that have been done it was hard to find information on the first one which was from uh, a writer named let me bring up the notes here a writer named Simon Moore and that was done in that play premiered right after the movie so it was in 1992 it premiered in London interesting and uh, yeah and he directed it as well it was also revived at the King's Head Theatre in London um, it was never I think like uh, something that went to Broadway or had big stars in but then um, in 2015 William Goldman returned to do a stage adaptation of his own, which as as many articles will tell you that, you know, are very King centric and that saw this version because this version played on Broadway with Bruce Willis in the role of Paul Sheldon and and uh, Laurie Metcalf from Roseanne and also recent Oscar nominee for mm-hmm. Lady Bird. Uh, Laurie Metcalf uh, played Annie. But yeah, uh, it was it's it's more of an adaptation of the film mm-hmm. <laughs> than it is uh, the book, which makes sense because, you know, William Goldman did both. So um, but yeah, it kind of just started uh, basically uh, the Warner Brothers has a theatrical division and they were looking for film properties to adapt. And then uh, it was basically former Castle Rock president Liz Glotzer, who said that she envisioned Misery as the kind of psycho thriller Broadway hasn't seen since Death Trap, which is a very popular 70s era murder mystery. So um, and they and then she had said that I we would only want to do it if Bill wanted to do it, Bill Goldman. So he was initially reluctant initially and then came around and basically was like, you know, I haven't done anything like this. And he goes and it was there. <laughs> so <laughs> no, he's very funny perfect reasons to do it. He yeah. also said because it was King and it's wonderful material. Okay, so, okay. yeah, but he um, and and then he talked, you know, he talked a little bit about it. They said that the casting of Bruce Willis was really easy because uh, he was looking to make his Broadway debut around this time. Yeah. So he had, uh, you know, basically expressed interest in being on Broadway. They were like, how about this? They did a reading and Willis had a ball. Well, he looks like he has a ball because I got to actually <laughs> watch. I got to see it uh, yeah. because um, our constant listener, Bill Bradley had sent me uh, some video that he had t- uh, taken when he went to go um, see it himself. Oh, that's cool. And. I was surprised to see that Laurie Metcalf was. I it just she kind of disappointed me. She really? goes a little too over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little too zany. Um, it's and again, theatrical productions have to be a little bit more. You know, you have to over embellish some of the emotions and all. But it, I just didn't see that sort of um, the highs and lows that you get from from Annie Wilkes. I just saw kind of like one constant rhythm, just like oh, hi Paul, here my favorite. It just was very like She's also exasperated, much, much older. Uh, than the Wilkes that's portrayed in the yeah, yeah, and so is Willis. Yeah, I was gonna to say fair, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, 
how is Willis? Willis is actually not bad. I mean, because it's kind of a perfect role for Willis, especially right now where he like loves to just kind of mug the camera, like sleepwalk through <laughs> roles. Yeah, so that's true. This is kind of perfect for him. Right yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. Well, he he's and also he's he's a really good physical, you know, performer. Like all the stuff that happens with Paul like having to kind of needle his way through the house. Mm-hmm. I can see it's, him doing It's a lot really like Die well. Hard, like where he's yeah. just trying to like kind of get by on his means and his resources. So he doesn't do, he doesn't there, do a bad job. Is there a scene where he's crawling through the, the hallway saying, oh, you know, write my novel, go down the thing, <laughs> <laughs> go to the snow. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a, there's a part where that happens and then there's also a part where... Um, you know, uh, like Samuel Jackson pops up and, and says, "Like, God damn it, Paul!" <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, the reviews weren't very kind to the yeah. 2015 version. Um, uh, they basically, most of them say that Bruce is decent and that, like, some like Laurie, some didn't. So, but like Variety says, the eek factor is largely missing from Misery, starring a laid-back Bruce Willis as the bedbound author held hostage by his greatest fan, played here by Laurie Metcalf. Despite the physical intimacy imposed by its stage setting, William Goldman's theatrical version of the 1987 Stephen King novel lacks the stifling sense of claustrophobia that made Rob Reiner's 1990 movie version starring Kathy Bates and James Caan so unnerving. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the atmosphere of fear and dread was just wiped up by the show's undercurrents of arch humor. Entertainment Weekly said it suffers from a curious lack of tension. And... Uh, but then NBC New York liked it. They said there are no lulls in famed screenwriter William Goldman's 90-minute stage adaptation of the Stephen King story, which Goldman himself translated in the 1990 film. Exposition that took a dozen pages in paperback and at least several minutes on screen plays out faster than snow piling up in a Colorado blizzard. So they basically praise it for moving really well. And, and apparently Metcalf got nominated for a Tony. Oh, wow. For Best Actress in the Play. I I mean, I maybe it's different when you watch it actually in person. All mm-hmm. and but I, again, I'm not a huge fan of the stage. I, I really am not. Like, which is funny because I'm surrounded by f- my best friends are all like, playwrights. Well, maybe and all, you but, shouldn't watch this. Yeah, but I, I, I just I my problem with like any stage adaptations or any stage plays is that everyone just has to kind of like oversell whatever their emotions that they're yeah, wrestling with bigger. at that point. And well, I, sort I just, of supporting what you know. you're saying is the Guardian review, which says that it seems to know that it's a genre piece rather than a serious drama. Exactly, and one yeah. wonders why the production didn't embrace the genre more. Um, and so uh, because basically they say that it's it's conflicted in that it, you know, I don't know, it's a little bit silly, but it doesn't go further enough. If you're really going to be like if you're going to have Annie be like as big and crazy as she is, then why not play up the gore and the gore effects and stuff like that? Well, you know, I mean, if one of our complaints for this was that, you know, we didn't get to see the sort of romance or like that that sort of dramatic connection between the two leads like mm-hmm. you really don't get that in the play yeah um, you it just kind of just gives you the face value of like what actually is did you see the hobbling scene uh yeah i mean it's 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 very similar like um yeah. except that you know obviously you're not going to have that sort of tension there as much because there's something visceral about seeing it as like in in writing because you're imagining it and then too like on film because the, you get to pull back what details you're gonna actually mm-hmm. see so you're just like gonna see it like happening at a full point so I, I yeah it wasn't like i just wasn't big on it and i and again it's, i'm the worst person to probably watch this because i'm just not a huge stage <laughs> fan so um I but f- i do love the idea because it, this out of all of king's works i think this is a perfect stage adaptation like, yeah. like this would be perfect and ripe for a stage adaptation and the fact that goldman did it is it's it's great that he was involved yeah and all, yeah. But. yeah the more version i don't know a lot i i tried to like find some reviews or things like that but it was really hard to find and um, i didn't have time to read the whole adaptation or pay money for it but uh but i did i remember 
when I was in college, uh, a friend of mine did a monologue from that version. And uh, it, I didn't know that one existed at that time. So I remember that was my first encounter. She did the chapter plays monologue and the whole Rocket Man kind of thing. And, you know, oh, yeah. he, you know, that monologue, which is pretty much plucked straight from the book. So so that's pretty much I know that that's in there. But uh, this is a funny bit from a vulture profile of the stage production uh, that interviewed William Goldman and kind of popped into some rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And I love this. Uh, Bruce Willis comes off stage. Goldman goes, are you exhausted? And then Willis goes, a little punchy, but not exhausted. <laughs> That's my Bruce Willis I love impression. it. I love, yeah. The actor thinks they've worked. And then the actor thinks they've worked together before in the 80s, but but neither can recall where. I ask Will if he's, if he's a fan of the writer's work and Goldman snaps. What the fuck's he going to answer? Oh, yes. I'm a huge fan of Bill Goldman. He can't spell Bill Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was very funny. Yeah. yeah um, and yeah. then there was a great New York Times uh, profile of Willis in advance of the play where it was one of those fun interviews where Willis gave them nothing, but they still need to write 1500 words about it. So the whole piece is basically like trying to find ways to pivot Willis's like reluctance to talk to them in any real fashion mm-hmm. into like you know, a character trait that suits it. But like, you can see the writer's frustration in the piece because Willis clearly, like she basically like makes a couple cracks about how he would just sit there like, and not like move or offer any emotion whatsoever. And like, he only, she goes, he only perked up when like, I mentioned that who was it? Like somebody knew him from maybe, I can't remember somebody knew him from being a bartender. Mm-hmm. And like, they mentioned that from, cause you know, he was like a bartender to the stars before yeah. he became yeah, an actor yeah, while yeah. he was trying to be an actor. And, uh, and cause I've actually heard that story before, but then he like perked up when they started talking about him being a bartender. And I thought that was like a little bit sweet. Cause he probably looks back on it very fond. Oh, I'm sure. Right, right, I'm so sure. he's like, Oh yeah, I was quite the bartender. <laughs> I love this in person. Like, just keep it going. Let's, why don't we just do a whole diehard now? I know. Like, no, I'm just trying to remember if he like, basically like he, he just wasn't giving anything and they were trying to ask him they're like oh what's your process like do you dig in he's like no no <laughs> you know he seems like a even just watching uh pulp fiction recently his portrait like the way he like brings to butch like the the character he bring, brings to butch i feel is very similar to what he's like in real life yeah probably where he's just very like kind of removed and when he's angry he's angry but for the most part he's kind of this like Cold, like just kind of complacent person. You know, I mean, I, I give him. the guy a hard time for like, you know, just kind of doing everything now and just not really caring. Yeah. Guy's had a huge career. Oh, he's oh, had yeah. an amazing I mean, career. he's like, he doesn't really need to do anything else. So, I mean, he's just doing these movies for the for the money, I'm sure. But I, mean, I still think he, he always, think he's a, always made weird decisions that are kind of neat, you know, when yeah. you really think about it. I mean, every once in a while, he'll pop up and, and you're like, oh yeah, that's I forgot how like, good you can be. Like, like Looper. I thought he was great. He's in great that. in Looper. He's and, the best part in Moonrise Kingdom in my opinion. Oh, he's uh, so yeah. good at Moonrise Kingdom. I wish he would do more stuff like Moonrise yeah. Kingdom. Just some more like comedic uh, like nuance yeah. stuff. Yeah, uh, not my, not not like the whole nine yards like yeah, <laughs> not like that. But no. my perception of him will always be, always be a little bit colored cuz there's an incredible book about the making of the Bonfire of the Vanities uh, oh, called yeah. The yeah. Devil's Candy. It's really good cuz that was a very famously troubled production and they thought it was going to be an instant hit so they had this well, the writer. book was a huge hit. The book was a huge yeah, hit but we'll because it all turned into a disaster but yeah. they had thought that movie was going to be a surefire hit so they basically let this journalist just full access to everything oh, wow. but then when it all fell apart they all regretted that and yeah. so she's kind of a big part of the story because um you know once they realized things weren't going well they didn't want her around anymore no. but she was and then bruce willis hated her and yeah. uh because 
Um, I don't think he liked her being on set, but then also he, she portrayed him fairly negatively in the book. Mm. And there's the version I read is like a chapter about her life after that, because Bruce very publicly said some really disparaging things about her based on the book and how she portrayed him like really nasty stuff. And so I don't remember exactly, but it turned into a big firestorm. And, uh, she wrote about sort of that fallout and how her, her feud with Bruce Willis and everything and how shitty he was to her. And, um, but that was, you know, that was the 80s. He was at the height of his stardom. Or was that the 80s? Yeah, yeah the late 80s. Yeah, late 80s. It's Yippee like Kaye. I know he was probably he was probably on top of the world. Well, she said that he had an entourage everywhere he went and like oh, you couldn't sure. even get close to him. Like the he was surrounded Hollywood by so entourage many people. Or whatever. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Planet Hollywood. So, Love I'm sure he's I'm sure he's uh, mellowed out quite a bit I'm since sure. then. But I'm sure. I'll always be a big Bruce fan. Die Hard is uh, Love Love is, Bruce. I mean, just the idea, I would even with the bad reviews, I still if it were still playing, I'd go oh, see I would Bruce absolutely. on Broadway, you know. In so. a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. So yeah, um, well that's that's all I got for the stage stuff. It it doesn't sound like the Misery uh, adaptation is a huge hit, but it still gets produced a lot. So because I think it's an easy production, they just did it in Cincinnati. My mm. wife's ex roommate works at a theater out there, and he they just produced it. And I was actually like trying to be like, hey, send some losers over, and we'll do a little event. That would have been but fun. Unfortunately, yeah. it didn't work out. But uh, but yeah, he said the production was really good, and um, I believe they did the Bill Goldman adaptation. That's so, cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So uh, move on to the final thoughts. I think so. Yeah. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. So, final thoughts on Misery the Film. Mac, was it better than the book or worse than the book? Um, definitely worse than the book because I gave the book five. <laughs> um, and I, I'm very fond of this movie. This is, it's, it's, it's a great movie. Um, I would probably give this, I'd give it four and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. Um, it's just, I, I, I just love, I love that it walks that line so well between comedy and horror. Uh, it, it makes the horror so much more visceral and, and, and scary, I think. Um, love the roles. I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about. It. We've we've been talking about it for two hours. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's really good, and um, but not as quite as good as the book. Mm-hmm. Nice, Mike. For me, what I love about this film is something that we've kind of kicked around is the rewatchability factor. Yeah, you know, there's there most of my favorite Sting ah, Sting adaptations. Right? <laughs> <laughs> most of my favorite King adaptations are the ones that I can kind of just put on anytime, anywhere. And Stand by Me is one of them for sure, and this one is is another. Um, and the same with The Mist and all, a few other ones. But uh, what I love about this is that this kind of legitimizes horror in the same way that like Silence of the Lambs would, the mm-hmm. same way that The Omen does. Um, it, it's a smart horror movie, and it's it's because it's not really a horror movie; it's more of a, dr- a drama than anything. But or a thriller, but I I, I just I love at the the quality of like work that we have here on all fronts like this is this is like classic 90s filmmaking where like when when like producers like really fucking mattered more than anything to be be able to string together like a quality production and Mm -hmm. they were actually thinking like what is going to work like who's going to be the best person for this this role who are we going to get that's going to like add some muscle in the script like what eye can can this be visionary like this is like back when like ip was taken seriously and not just thrown around frivolously and all so that's an interesting point like and that's there's something really nostalgic about this production because 
nowadays it just like obviously there would be some sort of precedence because king is so huge right now but if it was just any other like thriller it would just be tossed aside like it would just be like oh yeah here let's just get some other people in here in these roles let's go yada 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 but the level of quality of this movie is just it's it's awesome and it's and it's something to appreciate big time uh 20 something years later because look at where everyone has gone uh since then and just look at all the the, the power that we actually had in a stephen king property coming off of a, a decade where it was just all over the place so i, I don't know I'm, I, I, I like i like this movie a lot nose rating i think i'm gonna go with four and a half whoa yeah i i actually uh i i think that like kathy bates is so fucking good in this yeah. movie yeah. and it's it would just be a disservice to like go any lower and i think that even james Conn, like i love just even just like researching this movie and going behind the scenes and some of this stuff is just it was so much fun so yeah it's got my my favorite parts of hollywood in this between goldman reiner con and i love bait so yeah this is a four and a half for me uh i'm gonna go four four bright red pretty wise clown is i struggle a little bit with certain decisions i in the adaptation as well as i just feel like the um the real weight of it isn't really felt uh but of course a lot of that comes from me just having read the book so i acknowledge that um but i do think it is a really really tight strong adaptation one of the better adaptations of king's work and i also just appreciate it for the same reasons you're saying which is that it was taken seriously in an era where king wasn't being taken exactly. seriously yeah. and so that and it really is sort of responsible for, you know, there was kind of a bit of a king in the film world, in the Hollywood world, at least there was a bit of a king resurgence around this time. And people were taking the adaptations a little bit more seriously. And I feel like we probably wouldn't have gotten um, uh, Shawshank if not mm-hmm. for this movie, probably because, um, uh, you know, Reiner's continued investment sort of in King came from, you know, uh, this and Stand By Me and also the the concept that you could take King seriously and you could make drama out of it came from these movies. And I think nobody else was really doing that. Yeah. And so I appreciate the movie for what it did for King's career and the way that, like, I like what you're saying, Mike, about, like, you know, people really produced this movie. Like, the production mm-hmm. was really strong. I mean, getting Will Goldman for it, I think, was really great. I mean, you got, he's one of King's, uh, well, King is one of his favorite people. So it's like, there's a love here and appreciation. Yeah, there's a love here and appreciation. You, know? you really feel that for the material. I think the changes that are made are, for the most part, very much in service to the story mm-hmm. and really helping to make it the best thing it can be. Great performances. Love that it gave us a connaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm into it. So I'm going to give it four, though, uh, because, you know, I, I'm a bit of a stingy critic. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with four bright red Pennywise clown noses. and yeah, whatever, uh, whatever helps you sleep at night, you know? <laughs> and I think that averages out at, what, 4.3? I think so. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, Better than Sleepwalkers, which we'll get to soon. Um, (laughs) That's coming this year. So let's talk about our next book because you're going to want to start reading it now if you haven't already. It is – it's actually timed quite well because there's been a news piece floating around the last few days uh, from the website Hertz.com, H-A-A-R-E-T-Z. But a lot of people are sharing it. It's a very legit site. And – the headline is, if true, this could be one of the greatest discoveries in human history. And the subhead says, the head of Harvard's astronomy department says what others are afraid to say about a peculiar object that entered the solar system. Mm. And so basically there's uh, a lot of speculation about um, uh, a strange object that originated outside of our solar system that uh, entered it in late 2017 and stuck around for a little bit. And it's, a, I'm, it's been described as a pancake-shaped object. A very, very 
thin but extremely long, and uh, but also is operating in ways that some say could identify it as a UFO. And so, God willing, uh, this guy from Harvard is coming forward and uh, basically saying, I don't care if it ruins my reputation. We got to talk about this thing. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, this is Is still out there. I mean, no, 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 it's not there. No, it's gone back home. But (laughs) he he went as far as saying that he believes it is the Tommyknockers. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. I love that. Uh, No, that. uh, Well, what if it is? It might be. It might be. What if it's a copy of the Tommyknockers? Oh, this they, guy. This guy's a. Bit, but no, the Tommyknockers is not pancake shaped. It is very thick. It, it is that's very true. But this guy's a. He's a noted Tommy head and a Tommy boy <laughs> at heart. When he's when he's doing the interview, he's like clutching the book like Annie Wilkes. <laughs> well, let me just say, I'm very excited for the Tommyknockers episode because I got to say, I am a Tommy head you and are. a Tommy boy. Hey, you know what? I'm 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 about maybe 170 pages in. I'm a I'm a Tommy boy right now. Yeah, I'm you're a Tommy it. boy now, I'm but you it. won't be a Tommy boy I'm until you finish it. it. But, you and, know, uh, I, and I but I saw the miniseries when I was young <laughs> when I was a young Tommy boy, and I was I, and I I hold true to that. I was a Tommy boy. I love aliens. And uh, if you yeah if you want to hear about more about that you should listen to our Souls Midnight episode yeah Souls Midnight and Aliens it's a good episode um, but I'm but yeah, looking forward to the book I am t- yeah I mean I'm I'm you know a few hundred pages into it right now and it's so good like the beginning of it is so 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 good but you know this is a very controversial book it's considered one of King's worst King has called it a bad book in the past and a lot of our constant listeners I feel like have taken some jabs at it in the comments they have Justo is uh Justo and I both have been talking about this book for like I'd say a year this and a half is, now this is the- the Justo versus Rando uh, battle that we've been waiting yeah. for. It's true. Although yeah. the funny thing is, like, he loves the book, like, the first two-thirds of it, and mm-hmm. then he thinks it falls apart. And the thing is, I probably, I'm not sure how I'll react, because I haven't read the book since I was a kid, but I read this book, and this is, like, a 700-page book. I read it, like, three times when I was oh a kid. God. I was really into it. And I know it kind of falls apart near the end in a lot of ways, like, from my memory, but I'm excited to, I'm excited to, like, revisit it now, because there is a really good chance that I could still really love it. And there are certain moments from the final act that I remember as moments that hit me emotionally really hard. And I'm excited. I'm already seeing like the shades of it. Uh, and I just wonder if they'll hit me as hard. So I yeah. have to say this is one of my most anticipated books on the pod, and I'm very excited to do it. So we're going to get to that in probably three weeks. Yeah. Around yeah. that, we have some uh, we have some fun episodes in between. Stay tuned to our socials for what's coming up on the horizon. But as you know, we have many things to discuss at all times. So, um, you know, rate and review us. Yes, please rate we and review reviews. us on iTunes, Stitcher, all of them. We need your reviews. So if you haven't done it yet please do it but only if you're going to give us a good review and, and, and honestly start start following us on social net- networks if you haven't already we're on instagram we're on yep. facebook we're twitter. on twitter we're on goodreads fresh justin content. loves goodreads yeah 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 uh, so. he's 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 one of the handful and we honestly we deliver so much content on there like you were saying fresh content we do i mean it's it's daily for us so if you content. want you want a daily fix of the losers club <laughs> just follow us on there especially instagram because we are we're a huge presence on instagram speaking of getting your fix we do also have merchandise available we do you can find via uh the consequence of sound losers club landing page yeah so just google consequence of sound losers club and you'll find it yeah and uh yeah some really cool merch so pick that up but um i think it's time to sign off so uh long Long days days and pleasant nights
Consequence Podcast Network.